Yo, what's up? It's another episode of Real Sun Car Hours. Real Sun Car Hours. Uh, today is, well, on my end is September 9th. I think on your end, Peter, it's September 10th, uh, 2020. Yeah, for one hour, it's yeah. now September 10th. Yeah, one so. More, one more day to. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, we, got a, we, got a, we got a good one for y'all. We've got two interviews. Yeah. Yeah, so um, follow oh, us wait, at. Oh, wait, we should yeah, yeah, I'll just introduce. So follow us at Sankar Hours on Twitter. Um, I am Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. Ah, uh, this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. Um, perfect, yeah. And this is a free episode, and to keep this podcast running, um, please subscribe and be a patron at www.patreon.com slash Hours. Again, www.patreon.com slash real sun car hours. For $5 a month, you get um, bonus episode, bonus content, um, theory readings, um, ad- uh, additional interviews, um, other other good stuff. So, yeah, let, we have for this episode two, two interviews, and then um, at the late, later half, uh, we're going to wrap up and do some additional commentary with just the two of us so um so yeah we'll just we'll just 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 uh summarize well sort of shortly inter uh shortly introduce our interviews so um yesterday i went to um there's a protest in antioch california well it originally started as a hunger strike but i just got word today that they ended the hunger strike and now it's just an encampment and um basically uh they're demanding they have uh three three basic um demands so the first demand is to fire officer michael malone from antioch police department and officer malone um was the officer who killed um a homeless man named Luis Gongora Pat in San Francisco, California in 2016. Then their um, uh, second demand is to have, um, I think it's um, Ayello step down from the, uh, step down as head of the police union. Um, and their other one is to have <clears throat> basically better community representation in this, in the city's bridge, the cap, program um i went to the i went to the protest to talk to one one of the um protesters who was hunger striking her name is mckenna peterson so i interviewed her and then um, i also got an audio clip of uh of the announcement of the hunger strike ending so that was the interview i did and so uh peter do you want to um uh talk about jess uh just to tee up a little bit okay yeah, our other interview is with Jess Falero. Uh, they're a housing organ. They're an organizer in Portland, Maine, for housing justice and specifically uh, homeless issues. And one of and helps organize the. There was a big encampment outside of City Hall uh, a few weeks ago, and they were one of the main organizers with that. So we have a. A nice interview with them perfect. which will come afterwards perfect yeah and uh oh yeah just to cl- so steve aiello yeah that was he's the head of the antioch police union so 
Um, anyway, yeah, so these are the interviews. Uh, the first one will be the interview I did at the Antioch hunger, hunger Strike slash protest. And the second interview um, we, uh, we did, Peter and I did with, uh, with Jess. So anyway, enjoy. This is Adam Hudson. Um, this is my the interview I did with uh, McKenna Peterson in Antioch. She was she's one of the um, six hunger strikers. So there are there were six official hunger strikers. So Lacey Brown, Shagufa Khan, Michael James, Maria Brown, McKenna Peterson, and Louise Putpat. Um, like I said, uh, their hunger strike is officially over. So now it's just basically an encampment in front of the Antioch Police Department. So this is the interview I did with McKenna, and then after that is um, some uh, audio I was able to get uh, f from Facebook from Shigufa Khan. She, she shared this publicly uh, about the official announcement that the hunger strike ended, but they're still going to do an encampment. So that's of today, California time, uh, Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. So enjoy this. Yeah, just uh, say your name. Uh, McKenna Peterson. Okay, are you, um, do you live in Antioch? Um, no, I live out in Martinez right now. I grew up in Concord. Okay. But I do a lot of work out here with um, some homeless folks. Okay. So I'm with an organization that works all around the Bay Area. Okay, okay, gotcha. So uh, what, what brings you out here? So I am a part of the hunger strike. Mm -hmm. um, I'm one of the people that started on Friday, haven't eaten since then. Um, I know I work very closely with all the other hunger strikers. We kind of try to coordinate our organizations together to kind of provide resources for vulnerable populations across the Bay Area. Uh, and basically they came up, they approached us all with like this idea for a hunger strike. And we do, because we do work in Antioch, we know that for months they've been trying to push these things. We were also out here for the action against SROs in schools, which is uh, to prevent police officers from being here. Yeah, we yeah. We were here doing protests for that. That okay. was also ignored heavily. And hmm. um, even when we went to one of the um, Unified School District person's house, um, we were met with, they were having a party with mm -hmm. their friends during the school board meeting and they threatened us to, sh threatened to shoot us. And even though we were just asking to be heard, so I've been doing some work around here when they said they want to do a hunger strike, I was fully on board. Um, I think it's necessary to bring this type of attention when they've been doing these actions for months, trying to display like the real hurt in the community and the necessity for reform. And 
the yeah, defunding of the police, in even the abolition of police heading towards that direction, and showing that the community is... Showing that the community is like really in pain and really needs to be listened to right now. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a public servant, that's your job is to listen to what the community's needs are. And when that isn't happening, we felt the need to go even further to mm -hmm. display uh, this extreme form of peaceful protest because we're not harming anyone but ourselves. Right. Yeah. So I really agree with that. I am. Um, I think that's a really important display to contribute like your mind and your body to mm -hmm. the cause to kind of make that point of we're willing to go to any means necessary to gain justice and to protect our community members. Yeah, and just to like kind of, I'll just contextualize just for the podcast. Mm -hmm. So like um, in 2013, I went to Guantanamo and that was during the hunger strike there. Oh, wow. And I remember a couple years ago, there was a similar hunger strike in San Francisco for a very mm -hmm. similar- Frisco 5, yeah. Yeah, Frisco 5, yeah. So basically like what you're kind of getting at is that things are so bad that the only option left is like a hunger strike because mm -hmm. I mentioned the case of Gitmo and the Frisco Five because it was a similar mm -hmm. circumstance. Like, look, things are so bad. We tried, we tried going through the conventional means of getting change. Yeah. You're not listening. So then, the only option left, the most radical, peaceful form of protest, is hunger yeah. strike. I think in, I think it's a really big testament to the larger issue within America that these systems of government and these police systems would rather let us die than even have a conversation. Right. And I don't think that's just emblematic of this moment. I think it's emblematic of this country that they would rather let black and brown citizens die mm -hmm. than provide them justice. And what are the three demands of the, so the, you, so yeah. the six forced to strike? So mm -hmm. just explain what the three demands are. So the first demand is the uh, immediate termination of Officer Michael Maloney. He murdered a, uh, a homeless man in San Francisco. Yeah, Luis Gungora Pat, right? Yes. Yeah, that was back in 2016, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And right before the consequences for his actions were going to be uh, uh, articulated, he resigned and transferred here. Right. And even in this city, because technically you can't, they cannot fire him unless there are allegations within Antioch, mm -hmm. because they can't fire him if, for something he did in a different city. But there are allegations of him torturing somebody in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And the story is extremely upsetting. It's horrific. And there is probable, there is cause to fire him within the city. So that's a demand that is absolutely reasonable and, and doable. The second uh, demand is the resignation of Steve Aiello, mm -hmm. the president of the Police Officers Association, who online promoted violence against peaceful protesters, saying that he would absolutely, uh, he would absolutely agree with slapping a protester who simply gave a middle finger up to a line of police officers, mm. um, which isn't what we want in a leader. We do, it's not what we want in someone who's supposed to protect and serve our community, and that includes protecting peaceful protesters. Right. And the third is to have a community member at, at a, uh, to have an equal, um, an equal sta uh, status in the Bridging the Gap, which is a committee mm -hmm. that is going to be dedicated to talking about police reform in okay. the city of Antioch. So having community, the community be heard and also having people within the police department be fired because they are dangerous. And those are like three very, I think, yeah. logical, mm -hmm. like basic, 100%. Reforms. Like, it's because you're not even, like, even in those demands you listed, you're not even calling for defying the police. It's just, like, mm -hmm. just some very basic, yeah. straightforward And demands. I think the, um, 
the police reform or the, having a a community member on that police reform committee is what is really integral to also continuing to develop police like to continue holding the police accountable but also right. for those further demands because right, the, we do um possibly believe in the value of defunding the police like mm -hmm. so for us it's it's also just very indicative of how unwilling they are to even mm -hmm. give us the smallest of right. justices yeah we're, he, we're starving for simple things right and that is so absurd and i think it's just a testament to how far this country will go to avoid justice and to avoid uh caring about caring genuinely about community members who are vulnerable and who are under attack right now and and talk about like because even when i walked here there was some dude who's like oh no one cares but i heard like there's <laughs> there's been some trump supporters or mega yeah people so who yeah going, we're going down the list um <laughs> the first day a gentleman came out and talked to us for a couple hours i work right over here okay yeah i'm just interested in what you guys are doing mm -hmm. Mind if I just listen to your conversation? Yeah, that's sure, fine. Yeah, that's fine. It's a hunger strike. Yeah, and everything's right there on the flyer. Yeah, um, yeah and then I'm also one of the hunger strikers. So, uh, the first night, a gentleman came in, a Trump supporter, talked to us for an hour or two. We tried to be cordial, trying to not be rude to anybody. Like yeah, we're just yeah. we're here, we're here for the community, so we'll have those conversations. Right. Um, but he then decided to come every day. The first night, he was driving around pretty much once an hour every hour hmm. with his very loud car. Mm -hmm. And the next day, he came back made some more comments in one one moment he said love you the next moment he said is it okay if i ex say an explicit word Go ahead. no this he is said, this is uncensored okay Go cool ahead. he said uh shut the fuck up fuck you so very erratic unstable and then he sexually harassed me by making comments about my body and uh -huh. being very creepy and then he came back the next day and the fourth day and finally uh he the fourth day i believe he told us that there was a group of trump supporters who were about to come and quote fuck us up either beat us up or shoot us he said a little bit of both and um he yeah he kept saying all that all these threats were very credible we had two other people confirm that there were talk of people coming to attack us other sources that were a little more credible because he was a little uh, unstable right and then the police finally told him if he came back he would be arrested um for harassment so that was one thing they did that was helpful but he also said that the apd was in on it and if they did come and shoot us then we called the cops they wouldn't come out so that was one of the threats. Um, we did the first day. We had someone throw eggs at us as they drove by. Um, and do you need water? Sorry. That's cool. So we had someone throw eggs at us as they drove by the first day. Um, no, it didn't hit any of us. We were all kind of confused because we didn't realize what they were. I thought they were throwing trash out the window. I was like, don't do that. And then they sped off, running a stop sign and. We had one night a car come down this way and go full speed running this stop sign as if it was coming straight at us and we all kind of ran different directions after seeing a lot of video of protesters being hit by cars. Mm -hmm. You know, you never know what someone's about to do. And then a couple, like that was at 12.30 at night and then at 1 a.m. we had someone drive by and yell in our tents and harass us. So we, we all didn't really sleep until 5 a.m. because of the adrenaline, the panic, mm -hmm. the feelings of unsafety, yeah. genuinely. Um, and so that's pretty much all of the threats that have been going on. And the only time the police have ever checked on us really, uh, they come out a couple of times, but the first time in the first like four days was to see if the chalk we were using was not spray paint. Hmm. And I don't know, we were using the chalk for a long time and it, but they felt the need to bring out six police cars, the canine unit to ask us if it was chalk. 
And so that's kind of where the police are at. They're not really interested in engaging at all, hmm. offering us any water. And they know we're on a hunger strike, but city councilors, there's two that have come out. Um, and the rest of them have completely ignored the fact that we're out here. And yeah, that's pretty much what's been going on. Uh, yeah, the threats have been really nerve-wracking. It's hard when you're physically uh, drained to then be mentally drained. I am someone that suffers from PTSD, so I, I get panic attacks a lot. And so this has kind of exacerbated those conditions. Um, but I will say, if I can go into like the positive. Go ahead. No, okay. go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. Although there's been a lot of threats, I think this has been really impactful and really, honestly, in a in a, in a way, a beautiful experience because the amount of community members that have come out to support, to bring supplies, to literally just have conversations with us and thank us for like doing this because they feel the same way we do, but because of the the deep-seated fear that racism sows in a community, they don't feel comfortable like organizing these things or mm -hmm. doing these things or speaking mm -hmm. out. Right. So the fact that they see us here taking this a uh, very serious action in stand of the vulnerable members of the community. They're really thankful and it's we've met people from all over the East Bay who've come out and, and within Antioch who are just glad that someone's doing something because they've seen the racism and they don't like it either. And so it's been beautiful to see the community come together and support us. And I think that's been one of my favorite things about this whole action. Yeah, because of the, I mean, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. I live city over and uh, I'm familiar with Pittsburgh and Antioch's history and I know that um, Antioch used to be a sundown town at one point mm -hmm. and I'll just explain for the people who aren't who don't know what a sundown town is but basically it was like um, you know when the sun goes down then a black person like you can't be around or else they'll get lynched so there was like I think I remember seeing one picture in like the 18 late 1800s where Antioch had like one black resident and he had to basically live in an outhouse because otherwise if he went out the outhouse like past wow. sundown they would lynch him so like some of the the stories you're telling about like these uh i call them maga chuds or whatever mm -hmm. these <laughs> yeah. trump, trump people losers yes um you know just saying all this like you know dumb racist shit. uh it's like oh like this is that's basically like the idiot bastards children of like those yes. people it's just like it's the generational racism right, that's just yeah. remained here yeah um and it's up to a lot of people to come together to just be like that's not fucking acceptable anymore at all like we won't stand for that and i think we've had also people came out when we got those threats like 30 people came out to spend the night and watch mm. us like let us sleep mm -hmm. and i felt so much safer because we had all these community members out here looking out for us and to me the police isn't doing that. Like right. they're not here to protect us. They right. don't give a fuck. But we have our community members that are here to protect. We're we're gonna protect each other by any means necessary. And yeah, and it sounds like you're setting an example for the rest of the city. Because it sounds like one side of Antioch is like that old white revanchist racist chud mm -hmm. base, and then the other part. Because I know like Antioch over past I think 20 years has diversified. Like in mm. terms of population, like there's been more blacks and latinos whereas pittsburgh's always been very diverse but like i, I know antioch was like oh that's sort of like we're mm, this yeah. used to be like rural white people yeah like, you would not like like basically antioch then you go to fucking brentwood yeah brentwood mm -hmm. oakley that's like that's basically like alabama or something yeah you know what mm -hmm. I mean? oh a, yeah it's it's a, it's a turn of power especially yeah. like that's the biggest thing is mm -hmm. to let you know that one if you try to intimidate us we'll come back with people because 
that's the thing about what we're doing is it's for the community. So when you care for other community members, they will have your back. And that's the point of what's going on is like, racism is just a form of abuse. And when the cycle of abuse does not facilitate care between yeah. each other. So those like, that's why it will, it, it, it's bound to die out. But we, uh, it's something we have to actively uh, eradicate. Yeah. But it's because like that, you're not fostering care. You're not fostering love. Like mm -hmm. you're not, you're not creating a community that will stand up for you. You're, yeah. you're creating a community that fears you and that's, that's not sustainable. What we're doing out here is sustainable because we care for each other and we're gonna have each other's backs. And it's interesting, like the, I mean, thir so 30 people like basically came out and supported you for, to basically actually give you safety. Mm -hmm. While the institution that's supposed to be about safety, i.e. the police, mm -hmm. were not there. So this kind of like dovetails into my next question, which is about, because uh, we touched upon it earlier, like police abolition and defunding the police. So um, I was on a, um, this group called Our Revolution Contra Costas, like mm -hmm. the, the, yeah, so I was on the like live stream or something, I was watching it, and there's this guy named Michael Sampson, who's yeah. running for, so, yeah, yeah so, I know him, mm -hmm. yeah, city council in Walnut Creek, we do Creek. some work in, yeah, I've done, I, uh, go to a lot of protests in Walnut Creek, oh, okay. yeah, I've met him a couple times, yeah, oh, okay. he was out here oh, last cool. night, yeah, so anyway, well, full disclosure, someone, um, a friend of mine invited me to play music for a fundraiser for him, so, oh, nice, um, but, I've been fall I I so I heard I heard him like talk about his campaign on that stream, mm -hmm. and he was taught like one of big major thing in his platform is defunding the police. Mm -hmm. So, um, even though like you have your own like three specific demands, like wh 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 where are you guys at like in terms of defunding the police and those questions of like, yeah, because some people are like they don't favor police abolition but mm -hmm. they'll favor defunding, defunding. yeah, or they support defunding the police as a means of police abolition mm. which would lead to like okay uh, creating other forms of community yes. safety so what, yeah. what are your like like so, your thoughts or anyone else's yeah thoughts? so i think um there's a couple different orgs that are doing this so myself and michelle are part of bay area grassroots which is an organization oh. that fully we do believe in abolition of police okay so our organization is 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 meant to help support the community in ways that the police are obviously failing or actively hurting okay. and so I can't speak for anyone else, but I will speak for our organization. Sure. Um, yeah, we do believe in that because I think policing creates a a cycle of abuse that mm -hmm. cannot be rectified within the system. I think larger systems also encourage those forms of abuse. I think under, to a little broader, just under capitalism and under American systems, it's really hard to have it's I believe it's impossible to have policing that wouldn't be racist right. if you live in a, in a system that absolutely advocates for hierarchy. Right. So if we're always creating hierarchy between people, it's always going to lead to someone being abused at the bottom. So basically it's like the p police, like, yeah, because this is something we've talked about on our podcast, that mm -hmm. like, as long as you have like a system of racial and class hierarchy, yes. you're going to need like a group of armed goons to protect mm -hmm. it. So it's like the people yeah. at the top are going to need like their organized group of armed goons to basically keep the rest of the people in check. Absolutely. And at the point in which the police protect property more than they do people, uh, it's it, it becomes unsustainable. And like I've said, we have community members who take care of each other. Mm -hmm. Like, that's absolutely possible. There are people that want to do the work that would go out and protect those people. Like, I think a, lot, a huge thing people misunderstand about Antifa, anti-fascists, is like, as a, they're not really an organization, but also a huge right. part of their purpose is to just protect those community members that the police will not. Right, right. And so I think that's what is possible without policing. Um, 
And I think that this idea that we need police, like I am a historian, I studied history, mm -hmm. and this idea that some of our systems are going to stay forever is just unreasonable and right, just right. untrue. So this yeah. idea that we can't create a new system or that it's like things will always be this way right. is just, just definitively not how human history works. Right. So I think if we have that vision and that understanding, we can move towards things that are completely outside of the the concept of policing. Yeah. I think that's very possible. Yeah, because I mean, people thought like, oh, slavery is in inevitable, mm. and then the Haitian Revolution happened, and mm. then the, like so it's like, yeah, at one point people were like, yeah, slavery is inevitable. Black people are always going to be slaves. Then oh shit, oh. the Haitian Re Haitian Revolution. Well, and also I think people also don't understand the history of the, of the system of slavery in other in other countries and other cultures it was vastly different like it existed oh, yeah. in other in other societies but it was vastly different than anything that american slavery or capitalistic yeah. slavery produced so i think that is a huge huge misunderstanding and miscommunication which is why i think education of history is extremely valuable and needed because we have such a system of education that is whitewashed mm -hmm. a system of education that is completely misconstruing what has happened and also does not allow for people to think analytically and to apply those lessons into the future okay or into the present in my mind cool and uh so how is your resolve like how are your spirits i mean obviously hunger strike yeah, yeah. Like, um <laughs> i think today what was the hardest the first day was the hardest but today was really difficult because of the smoke um yeah my yeah. lungs like i can feel my throat uh, getting a little itchy um but I think, what, like, once again, just, like, seeing the love from the community, seeing that, like, we can make a change. And even if it's not always systematic and always immediate, it is with the relationships with the people. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that's the, that's the most important aspect of the action, yeah. is what, what are the relationships we're building with the community? How are we supporting the community? And how are we making sure that the most vulnerable people are being listened to and heard and cared for? Because okay. that's what we're here for. So... Yeah, the Trump supporters are scary and whatnot, but I don't really give a fuck about them. Excuse my language, but no, this I'm is, here this for the sense, yeah, I'm ahead. here for the community. And at the end of the day, when they're coming out and showing how much they care and how much they appreciate what is going on here, that's what's keeping me going because that's how we move positively forward. That's how we create that change and that momentum to create what we is what it is we've just been talking about. You know. Perfect. And last question. So yeah, this podcast. I mean, we're called Real Sankara Hours. We're a black leftist podcast, and so like our audience is, they're kind of based. People listen from like different parts of the country in the world. So you know, and our our, our audience is obviously like you know similar political beliefs. So for people who are you know listening to this, um, how can how can people sh show support to you guys, but also what yeah. can people do in their own communities? Absolutely. I think this is a global struggle, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, Angela Davis talks a lot about connecting with people with Free Palestine. Mm -hmm. Definitely making sure that we are connecting with each other. Um, reaching out to the pages that we have anywhere you are if you follow us and like send us a message of what you're doing and we will do our best to, to support from where we are as well mm -hmm. so i know like the organizations we have out here are bay Area grassroots east bay resistance um and and to me it's just like just just letting each other know what we're doing and kind of amplifying like the actions that we have going on and just listening to what each community needs because i think mm -hmm. that is a huge thing and that can be a huge issue of us projecting what we've done in our communities onto other communities right, right. when it's not it's not going to be the same for everybody mm -hmm. so just doing that that genuine 
listening and critical thinking of like, okay, what it is that you need and how can I apply my lessons to maybe your community and how can I take away that what you've done to apply to my community to help each other. Right. But right. always kind of doing that type of um, adjustment as to what's going on where you are. Yeah, yeah, that's something we've, we've talked about too. It's like, um, like I'm a member of this organization called Global Pan-Africanism Network. So. Mm -hmm. Um, each group and organization, they're going to have different missions, Absolutely. so to speak, but they can all like, you know, work toward a larger vision, mm -hmm. right? And uh, certain, yeah, certain, based on where you're at, like, you're going to have specific needs. Yeah. And um, one thing we've been talking about is, is providing any sort of like moral or even material support, like, yeah. if people need. So, like, if you, are, is there any like kind of specific material support that you guys need? Like, do you want people to donate or like? Um, we do have a GoFundMe. I also think a huge thing that is important is just like following the page if we go live because that's what mm. we've been. That's the kind of thing if anyone can't come out mm. if we do go live to like screen record our lives to make sure that we have documentation if right. the police do harass and abuse. And um, yeah, I think like yeah, connecting with with each other and like sharing each other's posts. Like if if, if you know you have something you need to amplify, mm -hmm. like don't. Donation, exactly donations and stuff I think that's been a huge a beautiful thing about um, supporting black trans women in this movement is getting all their Venmos out and making sure they're supported uh, financially for even as basic need for like transitioning or for basic needs like they deserve that safety and so I think that's been a huge thing of just amplify like take using our pages and our followers to kind of get everybody's struggles heard and making sure we're all kind of being supported in that way either financially or morally or um, uh, optically like even just like letting somebody know about an issue all right perfect well thank you thank you very much yeah of course good afternoon you guys sorry if you guys were on that other live it just kept ending um my wi-fi out here sucks um so i had to make a new live um but i just wanted to make an announcement in response to what happened to yesterday's city council meeting and chief tamney brooks comments to KTV News saying that he will not follow the demands that we have asked um, as well as what happened to the city council meeting and, and having our city elected officials not having any sort of um, acknowledgement or you know um, raising awareness in regards to just acknowledging that we are out here they did they just said nothing about the hunger strike and it just shows how much of lack of empathy that they have to their residents, to their citizens, to their constituents who are out here having a hunger strike um, in regards to just trying to create positive changes. We reached out to them. We tried calling them. We have tried have, having public comments sent. We tried doing so many different things. And at this end of the, our only option was to have a hunger strike. And now with the lack of communication that they we have received and we have put so much effort to try to talk to all of the um, stakeholders in this and they have sent no sort of awareness, no sort of communication with us. So we have officially decided to end our hunger strike because of our frustration. We will not die for these people. It, yesterday's meeting showed how much they do not care about our health. We will, however, still occupy the police department. We are not leaving until communicate to until our demands are met. Period. 
Uh, one thing that we did want to mention is we are not going to talk to any of the city officials until they are ready to acknowledge our demands and accept change in our community. So we, like I said again, we ended our hunger strike. We will still be out here. We're cleaning up a bit. Um, we got, you know, we cleaned the floors. Uh, we had chalk on the um, this area. And again, the police came here in the morning to remove the chalk. Um, but again, we're gonna have chalk up again, hopefully. <laughs> but it's not gonna be by us. It's obviously gonna be community members because people who are putting up the chalk are community members coming out in support of everything. So thank you all. I'll keep you guys updated. I'm I'm really, really upset with what happened yesterday at the mayor's um, workplace. I reached out to one of the young people who have been there. It was very, very sad to see the mayor lying, saying that he was held hostage. And he was he's telling East like new like KTV news. He's telling news stations that there were over 40 people. There were less than 12 people there less than 12 and they were all under the age of 18 all under the age of 18 almost all <laughs> and he was lying saying that he was held hostage these kids these young adults these these future voters were there to have a discussion with him having a mayor lie about that incident we have videos and we don't worry we will be posting them so Mayor Wright, I'm very, very, I'm just in shock with, with the lies you, you are creating. Dangering these young kids saying that they held you hostage. That is lies, sir. Lies. I'm just in shock with our so-called leaders in our community. We as a community members representing this community, all of us, Everyone in the stakeholders, like these young kids, us, the community members bringing us stuff, the, pe the people coming to communicate with what we're doing. We're all, we're all wanting change and that's it. Positive changes. We all represent this community. Just, I'm in shock. I just, I just don't know anymore. So we are not going to talk to the police chief. We're not going to talk to the city officials until they recognize our demands and come to some sort of re resolution. Until then, we will still occupy the police department. We're not leaving, and we are still going to fight. But we were—we are not going to die for these so-called elected officials who will not try to work with us in these demands. All we want is accountability. That is it. Uh, okay, you guys. But <laughs> long story short, we ended the hunger strike, but we will still be here occupying the police department until our demands are met. Thank you all. I'll keep you guys all updated. Hope you guys are all well. I mean, there's smoke in the air. Um, keep safe. Drink water. Be healthy. And if you guys want to come out, come out. <laughs> we like when a lot of people come out to talk to us and, you know, make the days go by faster because I am a full-time student. I go to UC Berkeley. I have two full-time jobs. Yet, I still have the decency to care about my community, to do something to create change. So for those of you saying, go get a job, honey, <laughs> I go to UC Berkeley. I have jobs. I have a family to take care of. I mean, I help my family. I, mean, I, don't, I don't have a family myself, but I help my family with like the mortgage and stuff. But anyways, 
thank you guys for all the support thank you guys for reaching out to us thank you guys for the like look we have a supporter here helping us clean thank you we love you <laughs> we got some supporters out there too we had a lot of people out here at night and yesterday we love you guys and hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day my hair looks really really crazy This is Peter. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Up next, we have an interview with Jess Falero, a local all-around badass and organizer doing important and groundbreaking work in the field of uh, homeless organizing and housing justice. Uh, also, just would like to put out a, a, a small content warning because it deals with some they talk about their experiences in the uh, in you know the system, and it, there's some pretty traumatic stuff that gets talked about. So, uh, just giving a content warning before that, but otherwise, uh, it's a great interview. Okay, cool. So, yeah, this is the interview. Um, Jess, why why don't you uh, introduce yourself? I'm Jess. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, and there. Um, I am a organizer and activist within the unhoused community. Um, I do a lot of work with youth that are experiencing homelessness, but also provide uh, mutual aid down Deering Oaks into the adult shelters as well. Um, I also organize the homeless encampment in front of City Hall um, and, and am actively and in the past have uh, talked with legislatures legislators about um, many different aspects of homelessness okay cool. cool so yeah you yeah you so jess you you and peter know each other right yes yeah i yeah we met during doing uh some tenant organizing stuff that uh went on to form the people's housing coalition which is an organization in portland that is trying to well i'm not entirely sure what it's doing right now but one of its goals is to sort of bring together renters and 
houseless people in of Especially you know in a more organized form because those because those are the uh, those are the people that are on the bottom the ass end of the insane levels of gentrification and real estate speculation that are going on in the city um so i guess one of my questions is how did you get started in all this stuff jess so uh i started organizing about two years ago um i was living down at the women's shelter on valley street in portland and i was mainly going up to augusta to testify in different bills that were going through the legislature that pertain to um, people experiencing homelessness and that I had some story with um, and that slowly turned into um, wanting to do more like on the groundwork and other things in the same kind of realm as what I was already doing um, so from there I organized uh, the March Den homelessness last year and uh, just kind of like branched out a little and kind of dipped my toes into different things to kind of see like um, where my organizing is most needed um, and most effective. Yeah. Um, and how did you, how did you get your political awareness, let's say? Um, because a lot of people in your situation don't end up sort of becoming organizers. Um, I think that when I first started organizing and I was going to testify in the legislature, uh, I had no idea. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that just by, um, kind of putting myself out there and getting involved in different things and starting to organize different things, I've learned a little bit more about um, the political culture. Um, I think that, um, as always, there's a lot to learn. Um, yeah. But I, I learn best by doing the work. Word. Yeah. Um, so, the, uh, the, so the encampment uh, was something that was sprouted up in uh on the steps of city hall uh in portland a couple weeks or about a month ago at this point right and, and mm -hmm. just to clarify this is portland maine not yeah, portland yes, Oregon. Not, yes where we live <laughs> um do you do you want it and i wasn't able to participate in it as much as i wanted to but i was very you know fascinated and you know somewhat amazed at what you, you all had put together and having gone through Occupy, I'd seen, I'd had similar experiences, but I know that it can be a very powerful experience. So uh, if you, do you want to maybe kind of take people through, uh, I guess from the beginning, uh, what, you know, what that process was like? Um, sure. I think uh, City Hall was a, huge thing um and i think that i learned a lot in the process um it was really stemmed from um the the wellness shelter closing and the 50 people that were in the wellness shelter getting spread out either around the city or to different parts different shelters in the town and um there was a lot of people that were like extremely frustrated with what had happened and we had started out as a one night sleep out um, on the steps of City Hall. And we had a, uh, a, a decent amount of unhealthed youth that we had been working with before this um, come in and step into organizing roles. Um, and from there, uh, the camp grew and folks that were staying, we had set up a, a food tent that was manned 24 seven. We had medics there that were there for the most part. Um, we had a clothing tent that was there as well. 
Um, and from there, the folks down at Deering Oaks Park um, had also graduate, gradually joined us up at the steps of City Hall um, and were able to actually sleep through the night compared to like staying in where they were in the shelter. And there was like a very common thing of, this is the first time we've slept throughout the night or that we've wow. been able to without mm. being woken up um, and asked to move. Um, so that was like a really huge thing at the beginning of the encampment when folks were coming through. Um, we were getting tent donations, so everybody had a tent. Um, we had tarps going up before the big storm. Um, we had a huge rush of people, house people come in and um, help folks put up tent while it was like actively raining. And then folks parked around City Hall and just kind of like stood throughout the night in solidarity with everybody there. Um, the first couple of days of camp were uh, really amazing and interesting. Um, we had a, uh, a press conference the night of, like the third night of camp and we had youth come and they shared, they spoke really well, very articulate and uh, shared their stories at the top steps. Um, we had um, the rally that was standing in solidarity with Portland, Oregon come through at the beginning of the press conference and kind of lead the way from the steps of City Hall. And we had a very powerful night through that. Um, following that, we had a general assembly. Um, our goal is to have general assemblies twice a day. Um, when you're servicing mm -hmm. anywhere between 80 and 150 people, that is not always the case, um, mm, which definitely yeah. um, brought in some barriers um, to our organizing and was part of the reason why we needed to transition camp. Um, but. Um, yeah, they had come in and we had a great, great experience. And the next day we had the, the General Assembly and we had established our ground rules. And we had somebody who had helped um, organize, I think it was Occupy New York come in and help us run the first General mm -hmm. Assembly. So we had a better oh, wow. idea on like what that looked like, mm. um, which was really yeah. cool. Um, so we had a really great one. And it was really great to see all the like, especially the unhoused youth, but even people that have been living on the streets for a long time, like want to step up and like they were taking in roles. They were manning the food tent. They were um they were speaking in front of people they were coming to the city council meetings um it was really cool and it was really cool to see like there was a unity then between renters and unhoused folks that happened um i mean that's how youth without barriers was started which is this new um organization here in portland um that's led by my partner um and it's um providing mutual aid, peer support, and financial assistance to youth between the ages of 18 and 24 that are currently experiencing homelessness, um, which is really amazing. We have a great group of volunteers who, not volunteers, we don't like that word, um, supports mm -hmm. people that have also been mm. either like a homeless youth or have been in teen shelters before that come with their own. They identify people that were, are in like recovery with mental health, people that like understand um, where these kids are and where they're coming from and um, offer them day-to-day -day support, which is really great. Um, I've definitely seen some positive butterfly effects from camp. Um, there's a huge, the tone around homelessness has changed for the most part within the city council and with the, within the narrative that we speak. And that was one of the first things that we called for. And we asked every single reporter that came to the camp to change um, was the way that they speak about us and asked them to change their tone of demonization to one of humanity. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll get to the to the city in a second, but I want to focus in on the general assembly and specifically the process of taking people who are previously unpoliticized and 
basically seen as like not part of society and giving having them discover their own voice and their own power um but also the the difficulties that come with that uh what were i guess what were kind of some of the things you ran into getting the general assembly to uh i guess up and running and you know what at in terms of the directions it ended up going sort of what did you what did you learn about that for sure. Um, uh, I think that there is a lot of new learning, but there was also kind of just um, some solidifying of old learning as well. Um, one of the strongest barriers we faced with organizing with people that are experiencing homelessness and that I faced myself because I, I was couch surfing and staying at the camp um, during this process. Hold on one second. Your Uber's going to be here soon. Um, um, and I was kind of couch surfing through this process. One of the things we learned is that it was, it's very, very difficult to organize while you are currently sleeping <laughs> in a tent um, or when you're couch surfing or you don't have a place to stay. And uh, uh, there was a lot of people that had a strong urgency to do something and to organize and that were um, essentially burning out because of the lack of just a safe place to go at the end of an organizing day and the lack of sleep and the lack of, um, just rejuvenation time so that that was a huge thing we faced um another thing that we learned is that um it, there was so much need in the city mm -hmm. there was so much need in the city that um we had a huge influx of people and it and it threw our organ organizing off board and off key which is another reason why we chose to um leave camp because we had such an there were so many people that needed this service yeah. and there were so many people that needed yeah. the safety um we had a huge influx and our numbers were increasing we started with 15 people maybe 20 most of them were just allies staying out on the first night to 50 people three days later to servicing 80 people a couple days after that and it was just we had people from the shelters coming in to access services we were providing daycare to people um it had become yeah. this huge like service hub just because of how many people needed that, needed access to the services um and it really caused a barrier to being able to give the pe folks that wanted to organize the tools that they needed to organize so right. if we were ever to do this again or any kind of organizing strategy one thing that like we would want to reorganize around is making sure that like we have a, a place for folks to rejuvenate and process the trauma of homelessness that they're currently going through and all the things that come along with that um and being able to give them the support they need to have the tools yeah yeah that's that's a really good point something to underscore in the process of organizing is the need to have mutual aid specifically to support the people who you are not just trying to organize, but also the organizers themselves, especially if they're from the communities you're trying to organize, you know, people on the marginal, in the marginalized parts of society, they need the support that is actually necessary. They need a roof over their heads and food to be able to, to fight, you know, <laughs> can't fight on an empty stomach. And yeah, I will say like, I walk by it basically when I come back from work or go to work and yeah, every day it would just keep getting bigger. And I was like, Oh, wow. Um, it's only a matter of time before, you know, the city was going to have something to say about this. So 
I guess that's my next question is Portland, Maine is definitely one of those cities that likes to imagine itself to be very progressive with, you know, good liberals, but also, you know, the new mayor at the very least is like firmly in the pocket of developers and they, they basically do kind of run the entire city. And so mm-hmm. when you started getting attention from the police and city council, uh, how did you, like, what was that experience and how did you deal with it? Um, I think that once we first got, I think the police presence started before the presence of the city council. And I would say that that was the most impactful um, because they caused a lot of fear and um, tumult within the camp. Um, We had a lot of harassment. We had people driving by, laying down on their horns, just driving around city hall just to mess with the people that were staying at the camp and causing a lot of stir. We had... uh, someone come in with a knife and pull it out on 11 different people. We had um, a gunman come by and shoot nine rounds into the camp. Um, And then we also had police um, that were coming in and uh, causing chaos within the camp. Um, And it was really crazy. We had people there that were police liaisons. Uh, We told people that were staying at the camp, you do not need to interact with police. Um, We have people that have done it at other protests and like, we'll do it for you um, if you do not feel comfortable. So please do what you need to do to take care of yourself. Um, but during the press conference, um, we had police surround the camp. Um, we had false, false threats of arrest throughout the encampment. Um, there, was, there was a lot, um, a lot on that front. Um, as far as the city council, um, it has been a very begrudging work. Um, They uh, do not get the experience, uh, are not willing to learn from the experience, and are very um, biased of their own conditioning and accord. Uh, That's the nicest way that I can put that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so it is, it's very hard, um, and I, um, there is no, I don't see, I'm having a hard time with, like, um, politically getting around um, it. Um, because I think that each of them care to their own extent and they've definitely done some due process work and are trying to figure out what is a way forward um, and have done some research. But um, that, that, that unwillingness is definitely still there for sure. Annette, Annette, what you're describing sounds like the case for a lot of cities in general because um, here locally in Pittsburgh, California, I'm working with basically like two joint campaigns. Um, the main one I'm focusing on is getting ethnic studies in the K through 12 system. And then there's another campaign, but it's more organized by youth, which is to get um, SROs or, or cops out of schools. And what you described, Jess, in terms of the reaction from local city establishment is very much like, yeah, like they're very, they don't want to budge. Like they're very much stuck in their ways. And um and even if it's like you're not even demanding like the most radical of things like like let's say you're demanding something that's like very like like something like ethnic studies in k through 12 like that's not super radical but even on that like we've been getting pushed back in the school board because the school board for the most part agrees with us but the the thing we've been facing is um them wanting to water down our demand for ethnic studies so we want we want a department like a full-fledged department but what they're kind of pushing for is like just one class or some sort of elective like something very very watered down 
Um, and even, uh, I mean, for this episode, there's we have another interview with um, some hunger strikers in Antioch, California, who are protesting um, the local police department. They just, as of today, they just officially ended their strike, but they're doing an occupation, which is sounds very similar to what you're doing, like an encampment. Um, and they're experiencing the same thing. Just the city just doesn't give a fuck about what they're saying, even though like there's a lot of community support for their basic demands, which are um, having one of these police officers step down who's uh, who actually shot a homeless man in San Francisco. Um, and then he got transferred to another city in Antioch, like the Catholic church. Like, you know, you just like, oh, okay, you're guilty of one mm-hmm. thing. So you, we're going to put you in another police department where you can continue yep. killing people. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's like what you're talking about, like that, that's like a major obstacle that any activist has to face in, um, you know, organizing in your communities. And like, I'm wondering, like, if, if you, if you have like any, like what you would say to to other activists who are doing the kind of work you're doing, but in other communities, like, and are experiencing that pushback from local administration, local city officials, like what, like based on your experience, like what, what would you, what would you have to say in order, in, in order, in terms of like overcoming that? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know that I have an answer for it. <laughs> I feel like that I'm also searching for that answer. Um, I feel like we we camped out in mass on their front steps to the point where like people were shitting on their steps from a lack of bathrooms, um, which is pretty crazy to me. Like, pretty nuts though. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's like, I don't know. Like, I need an answer to that question. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i think we're all kind of trying to figure it out because it is yeah like it is frustrating that like you know even if you're not demanding the most radical demands they won't even budge on like some very very basic reforms that are necessary to have a society that is a lot more humane than the current one we live in yep yeah and and i i will also say that there aren't answers necessarily um, in the sense that, especially what you've been doing, Jess, is something I've never even really seen before. And, you know, I'm in my early 30s, have been, I guess, politically active for about a decade now. And I've never seen sort of the level of dedication and seriousness with organizing a community that most people just completely write off. And so on some level, it is like you have to figure, you are figuring these things out for yourself. Um, and I guess, how do you, how do you approach that? Um, I guess on maybe a more philosophical or deeper mental level of, of sort of go and putting yourself in the struggle with the understanding that you don't necessarily know what's going to be on the other side. I think that I just, from being, from experiencing homelessness myself, I just understand that homelessness is a symptom of all these underlying systems that have essentially failed our most vulnerable people. Um, one thing that I've been really just like wrestling with since before camp is the fact that so many people that are experiencing homelessness were in the foster care system. And for me, that's a yeah. huge interlocking thing of like the children that are harmed the most right now are the ones ending up in this invisible people community that we're shoving aside. 
And it just tells me that there's a deeper uh, systemic issue that we're not addressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that like formal leaders are kind of chatting about at tables and like patting themselves on the back while they provide the bare minimum. And my thing is like, yes, like Portland is not the only place that this is happening, but Portland can advocate for other cities and other states to also do the same they can play a bigger piece than what they're doing and instead they're literally doing the bare minimum and kind of abiding by their law and order and they don't understand that like it's past that we're kind of at that point where it's past that like we've allowed so many harmed children to go through this awful system and kind of just be bounced from throughout the system in a million different ways and to allow them to live in squalor for their entire lives yeah (laughs) and i think it's something that like i'm afraid of as somebody that's like in that community and also aged out of foster care and like acknowledge that like that is the case for most folks um so yeah yeah um yeah that was really powerful um trying to remember what question i was going to ask (laughs) i um Oh right, yes. I want to. I want to foreground, of course, because when this encampment is going on, it's going on in the context of the pandemic. Of there was sort of an eviction moratorium, but not really in Portland. And then there, after that, you know, we are in a economic situation where people are hurting, and you know, millions of people are facing evictions, and so. One of the things that that occurred to me when all this was going on is that this is this isn't just Occupy as like a protest camp. This is literally like stepping in to perform the duties that the state is not doing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And as you know, basically the way everything's is going, like none of these problems are going to get any better. So I guess how did you? How did how did how did you see the camp relating to the pandemic and the eviction crisis? And I guess how do you see other people? How do you see those kind of tactics and strategies and organizing uh, being developed in the future to meet what will almost undoubtedly be a greater need? Um. I'm going to try to answer this question the best way that I can. Um, I think that when I think of the homeless encampment and I think of the eviction moratorium, which is one of our demands, um, I think of the folks that would be, that have accessed GA or just got their vouchers and entered new apartments. Um, I think of folks that have maybe had housing insecurity, but haven't experienced homelessness and what they'd be walking into when they come to the shelters. Um, especially due to Oxford Street having the 90 day rule and not allowing anyone that hasn't been there before. Um, And then I think of like the trauma that comes with homelessness and the things that like people that are housing insecure that haven't stayed in the shelter for a long period of time don't necessarily see or understand. Um, And I think of those things, I think of the things that people would be subjected to. Um, I also think of when it relates to one of the reasons why we transitioned out of camp is we we essentially were just like, we are providing all of the things that the government should already mm-hmm. be providing. And we cannot take that weight onto our shoulders because it's the government's job. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and and if you're going to be doing it, you might as well start forming your own government. I mean, yeah, which I like, which was a really <laughs> difficult thing for me only because like the people that were in the camp were the people were my, my friend Cody, who is a kid that I have known for years, whose mom is one of my best friends that I've lived with at the Florence house for the past two years, who was also staying at the camp. Um, I was, we were serving some teen center kids and that hit home for me because one, I know some of them, but two, because I've also lived in the teen shelter. Um, we were serving some friends of mine that have recently aged out of the teen shelter and like are living out on the streets that were also staying at the camp. Um, we were servicing some of my friends that I've experienced homelessness with. So it was a really, it was a really difficult like decision for me because on some level, like I do this work because I want, I know that my, my friends deserve more you know, because my friends are also my family um, and I know that they deserve more and they should have more and that our system is failing us. Um, so that was one of the things that was like a harder lesson for me, something that I've, I've like known just because of my own personal organizing life and like struggling to make it by because I won't go work at Dunkin' Donuts because that's not where, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not where anybody wants me at this moment. That's not a good idea. Um, but um <laughs> Yeah, that was really, that was, that was a difficult decision. I think camp that was difficult in like a lot of different ways as like um, one of the main organizers of it, like trying to deal with the day-to-day -day of the shelter and like all these people that have been so abused and neglected and like needed a lot. Cause of course, if you've been neglected, you need more. That just makes yeah. total fucking sense, you know? Right. And, yeah. and it was like really hard and then trying to manage the police and then the reporters coming in consistently like there is 16 reporters a day coming five six times oh, a day wow. and just in our face all the time and then there was people that were infiltrating the camp and huh. then there was people and just taking photos and then there was people coming in and just picking fights with people there you know so um <laughs> it was really difficult and i think that um i definitely learned a lot and there was a lot of just personal character growth but i think that it also kind of stirred something within the unhoused community that I don't think has been there ever. Where, I'm curious, like yeah. that pushback that y'all got, where do you think it comes from? Like, why, why are people like pushing back like that? Why, why were people pu pushing back like that? Where do you think it comes from? I think that it stems from fear. I mean, this is a population that we've been demonizing forever for years. This is a population that we say you have no value because you don't fit into our capitalistic narrative. And I think that we look at homelessness as a moral failing instead of a systemic failure right. and then deem people without value because they don't fit into the capitalistic narrative and forget that every human being has value and worth and add to our community. And I think that like you look at someone that is experiencing substance use disorder and you're like, why don't you just stop? And it's like, you don't understand the trauma that people have gone through because you have had it pretty decent. Like, you don't understand that, like, people act abnormally in abnormal situations, and then there's, like, butterfly effects from that. And I think that there's, like, a willfulness there to not want to, because in some level, they have to face the discomfort, and privileged people don't like discomfort. They're not used to it. And do you, yeah. was was there, like, an element of nimbyism? Like, not in my backyard? Like, we don't want this, like, in our area? Like, did you oh, notice Oh, for that? sure. That's pretty normal Portland anti-homeless rhetoric. I think mm -hmm. that's pretty normal rhetoric in general, but especially here yeah. in Portland, I think that like the not in my backyard folks are um, 
pretty awful. Like it's mostly people mm-hmm. that like haven't experienced homelessness or slept on a couch for three weeks and think that they know what homelessness is. Um, and that like goes back into like white supremacy and entitlement. Um, but um, it's, it's very, it, it's something that I'm, I'm still navigating. It is very huge. Uh, like yesterday I participated in the city council meeting and I just hopped on public comment just basically to be like, I'm sick and tired of sitting in these meetings and hearing such awful anti-homeless rhetoric. Like every single person in this community has added value to our community. And the only thing that you see is everything that they do wrong. And I'm kind of sick of that. You know, like people experiencing homelessness are humans that have talents and gifts. Like, <laughs> please shut up kind of thing. <laughs> Right. But um yeah. It's really hard. Like it, I don't like the question is is like how do you revive humanity in these people that don't understand what it looks like? Mm. You know? That, ooh, yeah, no, the reason yeah. why I asked that question is because in Antioch like it's been split because there's been a lot of community support but then there's also just been like um chuds who just don't like them being there like Trump supporters who have been threatening violence on them. Um, yeah, our youth got almost got hit by a car. There was some Trump supporters yesterday yeah. that tried to run over some of our youth. Same, same in Antioch and also in Walnut Creek. Um, I was I was talking to some of the protesters in Antioch, and they pretty much the same thing. Like uh, they've been protesting in Walnut Creek every week um, against police violence. And Walnut Creek is a very like upper middle class white area in the Bay Area, and um, yeah, there's a lot of pushback from those upper middle class white people who um like like are seething pissed whenever they see any sort of minimal demand for justice for poor people or black people like so yeah it's that's why i asked that question because it's like it all like see like i i feel the same way as you is like looking at those people it's like it's like wow you have no humanity like you really don't give a I shit. Was, it's just like, it's just like that the humanity's not even there. So it's like, it it, it reminds me of um, uh, that Kwame Ture quote, where he said, "Nonviolence only works if your enemy has a conscience." And the yep. United States doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if you still remember this, but I still remember doing uh, Bayside Village stuff when we were. In, somebody suggested we go to a neighborhood association meeting. And when we went there, the chief of police was also there. And all the people in the neighborhood meeting, neighborhood association meeting, were essentially badgering the chief of police for not like getting rid of all the poor people on the street fast enough. Uh, what? I walked out like 17 times from <laughs> yeah. that meeting. And I just what? remember Kate Sykes being like, you should get up and say something. Yeah, it it was it was a peer it was a it was peering into the pure dark heart of petty bourgeois fascism that seethes in you know every city and every you know middle class neighborhood every neighborhood in transition quote unquote um, and I and it yeah it's it was it was good to remember exactly how these people think. And how they think about you, um, and you know those were the people even... that I jumped on the public comment last night for. Yeah, it was yeah. two people from BNA. Oh wow. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, but it, 
we I think we've been going for about a half an hour now. Um, but we can keep going for a little while longer. I want to sort of tie together basically how incredibly linked up the issues of police violence and homelessness are. Um, because, you know, like what, like, they could, like, yeah. Can you speak to that? <laughs> um, very, I can speak to it a simple topic. Yeah, I can speak to it for a little bit. Um, police violence and homelessness. Well, we lost a we lost a lot of people in the past couple of weeks in the community. We've had a lot of vigils, um, but um, there was one particular man that was a traveling kid that passed away in the community, and the cops played a huge role in it. They didn't necessarily shoot him, but um, because they go down at 10 p.m. to kick everybody out of Deering Oaks Park, um, everybody has to go find somewhere else to go until they can come back around 2 a.m. And this, it was raining outside that night, and this man went up to the post office and ended up dying on the steps of the post office that night all alone. Um, so, like, even police brutality doesn't necessarily need to be, like, one-on-one, -on -one, like, I'm going to beat you with a bat. It's also those, like, those those small harmful policies that are based in systemic oppression. And I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday at another vigil I went to. I've had two vigils this week um, where we've actually had about 11 people, I think 12 as of yesterday morning, pass away in the community. And uh, I was having this conversation with someone and they had come and they had gotten roses from the vigil. And I was talking with people and I was like, I feel a lot of ways about them taking roses, especially since like they're had a main part in why this person passed away. Mm. And I was talking to a staff that worked at Preble mm -hmm. Street at the time. And she was like, I hate myself because I have such a full overview of things. I think that just in the same way that like, there's a lot of things around Preble Street that are wrong. Like, you know, that individuals are okay. It's the same way with the police department. And I was like, yep, that's systemic oppression. Hence the problem. The foundation is wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just, just to clarify, Preble Street is the main homeless shelter in Portland. Yes. Um, it's like a non-profit homeless empire. Yeah. 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 And also police have also killed homeless people. To, to Going back to that Antioch protest, um, the officer Michael Malone killed a homeless man named Luis Gongora Pat in San Francisco in 2016. And um, yeah, like, you know, a game of musical chairs, like, oh, okay, this one cop got busted. Like, you know, the press got on to them killing someone or abusing someone. So, so they leave one department, then they move to another. So yeah, you're right. Like it's, it's all There's part no actual of... accountability. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that that you mentioned that I think is important for people to understand is if you if you want to could you go into sort of what life is like in a homeless shelter because I think maybe some people still have sort of the Salvation Army like they don't understand the reality of it uh, and why actually sleeping on the street may be preferable for a lot of people. Um, I can try for sure. I think that that's something that I've been really working on being able to articulate. Um, I think that overall it's very difficult for people experiencing homelessness to communicate it just because it is so traumatizing. Um, yeah. But I can just speak from personal experience. Um, 
the way I became homeless was I aged out of the foster care system and they moved me up to Maine to be with my mother who has um, severe mental health problems. And I ended up homeless not too long ago, not too long after that. Um, and I was actually like left at the Lewiston library in my penguin pajamas when it happened. Um, and I had never oh, wow. been to Lewiston before. So I was very much just like, okay, this is a thing. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But each shelter is like incredibly different. Like my first shelter, I got dropped off at Hope Haven in Lewiston, which was my first shelter, which you have to be outside all day. Um, you can access dinner services around 5 p.m. And you wait outside in a long line and you go into the soup kitchen, which is um, overcrowded. And you have a like slice of pizza or like four chicken nuggets and some fries. You know what I mean? And then you sit down at the tables and you're allowed to go back upstairs around like seven and uh, the women and the children, um, single women and mothers with children were on the sixth floor. So after walking around all day, I used to hang out with a homeless family that was there as well. And we would walk up all five flights of stairs to the sixth floor. Um, and then we'd be out around 6 a.m. and then wander around the streets all day. Um, as someone who didn't really like know anything, there was no tour guide for me. And I also didn't have money or a cell phone. So um, trying to figure out where the different services were, where I was even going um, was such a big thing. And then just kind of being thrown into a shelter where I didn't really know anybody and kind of had to figure out my way. Um, I ended up being sexually assaulted and then um, I ended up in the hospital and then they sent me down to Portland. Um, I was treated like crap when I was in the shelter because it was like a very much a burden of like, we have this young person with nowhere for them to go. So we're gonna send them to wherever. Um, and I got sent down to the teen shelter in Portland. Um, and that was a whole nother thing. Um, but I guess I can talk about my experience being in the adult shelter. Um, the Florence House um, is, um, it's a very cramped space. Um, they have 15 safe havens, which are little cubes um, for people that have higher barriers to retaining housing. They have 25 apartments upstairs, small efficiencies for folks, and then they have 24 um, shelter beds. Um, you sleep on metal cots um, with mattresses that are uh, probably an inch thick and pillows that are definitely like very, very flat. Um, and as someone who is like a long-term stayer, sleeping on that for a long period of time really wreaks havoc on your body. And it took me a very long time, last time that I got housed, um, a good five months to like fully recuperate from that. Um, on top of that, there's a variety of things. Like first thing in the morning when you wake up, you're waking up to absolute chaos. Um, there's things going on everywhere. Um, your access, your just freedom to do things is limited, which is very difficult when you're kind of thrown into a space with so many different people. Um, and everybody there has different kinds of traumatic um, stuff that they've been through and are currently dealing with. Um, and there's no real like support. Um, there's not enough staff. There's not any um, tools that they give you to learn um, how to retain housing or what that looks like. Um, and it's very much just kind of like um, consistently either, um, you know, being uh, harassed or uh, assaulted or just surrounded by absolute chaos all the time. Um, the lack of sleep that people go through um, because of all those things combined is absolutely nuts. Um, I tried to work an overnight dishwashing shift for a little while and I was leaving around five o'clock at night and missing dinner to get down to work um, downtown, which is like a 25 minute work walk. And then I was um, 
leaving work at like one o'clock in the morning and then showering and walking back to the shelter. I wouldn't get to the shelter until like 3 a.m. And then trying to sleep with all the chaos that was happening was absolutely nuts. And then being woken up at seven o'clock to like a blatant disregarded um, wake up call where they just come in and they thrust on the light and they're like, it's time to get up. And they come up and they patch your bed very much like prison. Um, and then it's time to get up and then there's no sleeping throughout the day. Um, sometimes I would make a cot in the um, dining room, just in the corner, just take a blanket and kind of curl up in the corner to try and get some sleep, which was also not helpful or did I really get any sleep from it? Um, and then there's just like uh, the day-to-day -day stuff of like, there's always a risk of human trafficking. I was trafficked twice while I was living at the teen shelter. Um, there was, there's just, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, I mean, thank you for being yeah. willing to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I think it's important for people to understand the levels of trauma people who have to go through this system are experiencing. Um, and and then they give them the bare minimum. And it's, <laughs> yeah. No, you're okay. Um, and I, and then they give them the bare minimum of, and then they get, they get frustrated when people can't get their, when they can't get their lives together, but we're not actually offering anybody any tools to do that. I went to two domestic violence shelters throughout the time of being homeless and I refused to go back to one. Yeah. Cause they're not safe and the mistreatment mm. and the lack mm. of resources. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess sort of the, whenever I guess it's talked about, you know, people say sort of the obvious solution is housing first, like just put people in homes. There's enough empty apartments in, you know, any given city such that you could house all of the people. But of course there are lots of interests that prevent that from happening. But in your experience, is that the best way to talk about the solution? Um, I came across this question. I did a webinar uh, last Monday where I had two people that I was speaking with that I had very different opinions and very much were like, it's just a reallocation of wealth. Just put people in apartments. And I think that's only one step, especially when you look at the connection of the foster care system and like our most vulnerable children and then them becoming homeless and being more subject to domestic violence and human trafficking um, and all those things. Um, you can put people in apartments, but that doesn't give them the resources they need to eat. It doesn't give them the resources they need to live. It doesn't make it a trauma-informed space. Um, most people experiencing homelessness have no community, um, um, and that stems from the foster care system as well um, is one of the main points, or like a unhealthy home where the state did not interfere because we know that they take kids that don't need to be taken, and then they leave kids that... Um, need to be taken care of and then whatever kids they have in their system they don't do anything with and they just kind of shuffle around um and i think that when you put someone in a house that's one step right and then you got to make it safe for them trauma informed means a um place where you can sit and you can um relax and rejuvenate it means finding the things that calm you down it means um, having a community to process your trauma with. And I think that one thing that also gets left out of the conversation is folks that have experienced in homelessness are terrified to be housed. 
People that are experiencing homelessness are used to constant chaos. So the second they get into an apartment, the silence is terrifying and they don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. They are used to instability. They are used to trauma. They are used to chaos. So you can't just shovel in someone in a quiet room or a quiet couple rooms and say that that's it. Um, Because these folks, like even folks that have been sleeping outside for a long time, the second that they get housed, I knew someone that slept on her porch for the first six months of being in her house because she was so terrified to sleep outside. Because she'd, she'd been sleeping outside for so long. It sounds it sounds like based on what you're saying, and 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 let me know your thoughts on this, Jess. But like, it, it sounds like in addition to, like, a home in the sense of like a physical structure where you're safe, um, there also needs to be like an actual transition process between being homeless and getting in a a house. Um, and then also like the it seems like the next thing is going to be like an actual living wage like a job where you can make enough to survive as a human being because i mean even if you put someone in a quote unquote house uh i don't know how it is in maine but you know the housing in california and apartments are really fucking expensive so there so it's, um, it's very expensive up here too yeah so yeah, i think it's also important to note that like folks that are experiencing homelessness have hard housing retention so they mm. don't retain housing for that long and they go in and out of housing which causes a bigger problem yeah. without within like the landlords and whatever but um one thing with that is like folks like me myself and i let me talk from my own experience like mm-hmm. i have a hard time with housing retention because i've literally been bouncing from place to place since birth Mm. because of the nature of my unstable home and because of the nature of being in foster care and then ending up on the streets like that's one thing like and this is where like community plays a big piece like a person experiencing homelessness cannot go out through this alone like the whole thing is that like these folks have nobody so that's an important piece and i think that around the work thing like folks that are extremely traumatized like their capacity looks different Mm. it looks 100 percent different and i think that there is this um this narrative of like what we value as work and it's very uh capitalist like it's capitalism Mm. and i think that like the folks that are extremely traumatized do work um but it does not end up looking like a 40-hour job so that they can maintain their houses because they're too busy trying to sort through their trauma right you can't have like traumatized people like the priorities are very different um, and you need to heal and like he- the timeline for healing is not existent. There is no timeline for it. Right. They traumatize somebody. They're going to go through their emotions and our society doesn't take account for that. There's one word you said that I think is really important is community. Mm-hmm. Uh, that like, I was thinking of this, there's this um, famous George Carlin joke where he's, uh, he's talking about base. He was joking about like, we should just get rid of golf courses and build uh, homes. Um, and he, one point he made is that there's a difference between like a house, which is a physical structure versus a home, which is like a sense of belonging. Um, and the, when you said community, like that's what stuck out to me is, is just having like those, like a fit like a, a set of like physical walls around you protecting you from the elements like there's still that need for community I, is that fair to say yes um yeah i 
I think maybe we can probably wrap this up. So I, I kind of want to take that and transition it into, I guess, kind of a final question, which is that, or maybe make it kind of two questions, which is that, yeah, it's, you know, in America, especially, it's so easy to have an individualist mindset and just work on, you know, maybe if you, you know, it is pot, it is possible for some people, obviously not for most people in that circumstance, but some people, it is possible to work their way out of it if they sort of, they're fully into the individualist mindset and forget everyone around them um, and have no problem leaving them behind. But you, in your in your organizing work, are very consciously rejecting that. Um, and how, you know, that's that's obviously it's in a sense it's make it's taking the harder choice, but it's that you know it's you probably see it as the only choice you can make, right? Mm -hmm. That'd be correct. Um, I think that it's the only choice that will provide solutions. Um, I think that if we house people, I, it makes a huge difference. Like people have a place, but it does not give people the things they need to live. It does not provide the tools that people need to survive and heal from their trauma. Um, and I think that that is only a first step into the conversation. And uh, I guess what, um, let me think about how to phrase this. Um, what, I guess, like, I, I don't know if you are, I, I don't know. I'll just, I'll come back to that. I, the other question I wanted to ask was basically, you know, we're a little older and, you know, we're, one of our things we're trying to do this podcast is, you know, sort of support the youth and the younger kids, um, as they are sort of coming into circumstances that are even, you know, that there's almost no like blueprint for. Um, and I guess in your, in your experience and also your experience working with youth sort of, how does, how does, I don't even know what you guys call yourselves. Um, how, how do you, how are you approaching both politics and also just, I guess, the world at large? Um, what's um, that? What's something that older people should know? I think that I've been really focusing more on the world at large at the moment, only because like you need to address the world at large in some manners before you can address the politics. Um, because right. of the culture of politics at the moment, um, so I've been doing a lot of work on the ground with the youth and. Um, providing um, tools and like educational resources and we're going to have an anti-racism training coming up here with the youth and um, offering that kind of like one-on-one -on -one support and love and like honoring their um, urgency to organize and like um, helping them figuring out where to put that energy as it comes along. Um, I think on the political aspects, it's been very different. Um, recently, um, I've been chatting with the mayor since the encampment on and off. Um, and it's been this very, this very rigid conversation and it hasn't really gotten anywhere. And what I've been trying to do recently is because the mayor is very in tune to children. So a lot of the times we've been, um, like in the listening session, we had a lot of 
um, youth come up and share their stories and really trust trying to um, amplify on that as much as possible. Um, but really that's kind of scarce right now and we're just trying to um, move forward as intentionally as possible. Uh, word. <laughs> uh, Adam, do you have anything else to add? Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're getting kind of, I think past 50 minutes. So I'll, I'll just, um, yeah. I'll just ask the final question just to wrap up, but, um, how can people support you? Like, what do you need and how can people, cause this is, um, um, it's a question that, um, we've often come across, like when we talk about things like this, like how can people support? So, you know, if there are people listening to this podcast and are moved and they want to help out, like what, what do you need and how can people help like you know in any material support or uh spiritual emotional support or solidarity like like how can people support i think the biggest way people can support us right now is through our mutual aid funds um on our main people's housing coalition page we're consistently fundraising for uh jail support for folks that are experiencing homelessness um we're also currently fundraising for um, mutual aid needs for people that are experiencing homelessness. We raised uh, almost $100 for a young unhoused couple the other day so that they could get groceries. Um, and another thing that we're doing specifically pertaining to the unhoused youth is we're currently fundraising for Youth Without Barriers. And the, the Venmo is actually at Youth Needs. Um, and again, that just provides rent support, that provides clothing if they need it that provides groceries when they need it it helps people have cell phone bills for safety um and it um just meets basic needs for folks that are experiencing homelessness and we also provide peer support and um crisis intervention excellent yeah i think okay yeah so we'll we'll try to put that information in our podcast yeah, and so we'll put links to all that in the show notes um thank you so much yeah. i know it was a bit of a struggle to get everything to work <laughs> out um so i'm glad i'm so glad we finally got you on you enjoyed those interviews i mean they're they were i mean that the interview with jess was amazing and uh um i really i really enjoyed going like going to that that antioch protest was like this is the first time i've actually been out out and talked to people for an extended <laughs> period of time in months but like we we're all wearing our masks but it was like oh wow it's like it's nice to actually just be out and talk to people like not going to a fucking like i don't know like fuddruckers or something oh like, did you hear about with... fuddruckers r.i.p right it went on a bit didn't it? it went on a business so... yeah they're shutting it down along with uh yeah i mean a lot of businesses 
that were hanging on are becoming casualties of the COVID recession and Fud Ruckers is no will be no more. Um, all the hey, this is Trump's Trump's great economy, right? Yes, all the people, all the yeah. people who were willing to storm a state capitol to go to Fud Ruckers now, in now they can't even go to Fud Ruckers because it went out of business. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, I want to um, give an update. I mean, obviously the <clears throat> the 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 clip i got um the clip i got from facebook uh the public announcement that yeah this is already covered in east bay times um they ended announced the end of their strike on facebook live like shortly after 1 p.m pacific time on september 9th um and yeah it is basically um because the day that i went like yesterday the day that I, i went to the hunger strike that was the same day of the city council meeting. So the Antioch city council was meeting. And, um, when I was there, so I went there and, um, there's the Antioch police station and it's right like in a residential area. Like, so there's a police station and across the street are a bunch of homes and stuff. And, um, it was pretty, it's pretty chill. It's, it's like, it, it reminded me of occupy like the days, like the tents and people were, sleeping out and chilling and um someone was uh they were listening to um the live uh, Antioch City Council meeting and so as I was listening there were there was like the public comment section and like a ton of the public comments were people supporting the protesters nice. and saying like yeah saying you should listen to the protesters demands they're basic um and the ref- city people were really mad at the city's refusal to meet with the hunger strikers um and just you, you know so antioch city's response is like well suck our balls basically um not in those exact words but that was pretty much the pretty much their response so um police chief tammany brooks said i, I think i think this is like a in a this is in an email to east bay times said that he had no plans to fire Michael Malone or any off any officer based solely on someone's quote unquote demand. Um, this is according to the East Bay Times. This is what Brooks said. The investigation into documents released by SFPD after Officer Malone was hired back at APD has not yet been completed. With that said, there is no there is no just cause to take action at this time and he is entitled to due process like everyone else oh okay so like the same due process like was tamir rice given due process or like yeah or george floyd like or any of the number of black unarmed black people who in black and brown people who've been killed by the police like like where was their due process um you know so the cops the cops the cops just could they can play judge, jury, and executioner all they want, but when it comes to the police, like, oh, we need due process. Oh, okay, so due process for me and not for thee. Yeah, I don't know. I Come on, police chiefs are supposed to be woke now, so you're supposed to be like, yes, we hear the community. We are listening to your voices. Yeah. We are centering your voices. We understand the pain you feel, and then also we're not going to do anything. But well, come on, come on. I mean, I guess it's not, it's not a big city police chief like 
Acevedo or whoever the Houston guy is who spoke like at the DNC and then the week before went on Alex Jones. I mean, that's the real that's the real police chief hustle. Um, most of these, <laughs> and that's why it's still small. And as I as I mentioned in that interview, Antioch uh, is a former Sundown town. So nice. you know, Sundown town is a base. Yeah, basically, or, like is it, know, is it is it is it a former Sundown town or is it still one? Uh, let's just say Antioch Sundown tradition had had uh, has grandkids. Oh, let's right. just say that, like in the in the form of Trump supporters. So like when I was there, um, the community response in terms of people driving by was, um kind of split like there are a lot of people who are honking in support there's a lot of them but then there were like people who were just like these MAGA chuds and haters like one guy drove by and said nobody cares uh and then they had like, i mean he clearly he, cares he was, enough to yell at it to yell about it right 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 yeah he clearly cares enough and um also at the encampment um yesterday they had uh they were doing chalk art, so they did chalk on like this. You mean um... graffiti? <laughs> right, graffiti. So there's like this section of um, it's outside the police station, and it's like you're you're going up the steps, and there's like a brick wall, basically. Like there's grass on one side, and then like the sort of like the concrete on another, and there's like this brick wall. And so on the brick wall, they were doing like chalk art, and so they had like Black Lives Matter, and then they had uh, a cab. Like all cops are bastards, and apparently, the, so the cops came and they power washed the, all the graffiti. Wow, that's so and that's so that's extremely cop behavior <laughs> to power wash sidewalk chalk. Like you literally could just use a garden. No, we we're good. We're fucking sandblasting this shit. You'll fuck around with the yeah. Antioch Police Department. God. Yeah, and and <laughs> what was funnier is that. Uh, apparently one of the cops saw the quote-unquote graffiti or whatever and, like, saw Black Lives Matter and said, uh, I agree with that, but not that. And he was pointing at ACAB. So, <laughs> 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 it's like, I'm not you know what, don't call... I'm not a bastard, fuck you, I'm a power washer shit, I'm, bitch. I'm not a bastard, let me punch you in the face again. Right. Show you who's <laughs> like... a bastard. <laughs> right and and uh um so but the it it was just you know like um there is just a great sense of community mm -hmm. and solidarity like there are people from from other parts of the bay area who are coming to show support and there were threats made by this trump supporter weirdo uh to like you know that oh there's going to be some bad people to beat you up or maybe kill you and then you know, once that video was sent out, like, there were a lot of people who came and spent the night with them to provide extra security. And, um, yeah, like, the hunger strikers, they felt safe. And, you know, there's just this very, very strong sense of community. And I I definitely felt it. Like, I felt very, just going there, I felt pretty rejuvenated just because, like, you know, all the shit that's going on with the COVID pandemic, the quarantine, the... <laughs> shitty economy the the shitty election and this shit presidency and also california like if you've been paying attention 
uh, pretty much the entire West Coast is on fucking fire. Like, today I woke up and I looked out my window and it looked like fucking Mars. Like, <laughs> it... I was like, wait, is it nighttime? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, like, yeah, the sky's all red because of the, you know, smoke from the wildfires. So it's like, you know, we are in the apocalypse right now. Like, this is, this is it. Like, this is, welcome, apocalypse, apocalypse 2020. And despite all that, like, just being around those protesters and everybody else, it's just like, it was just a nice warm feeling of community and camaraderie and be, just being able to talk to people face to face about what's going on in the world and even just getting to know people and their own feelings of anxiety and frustration at the current state of affairs um just yeah like it 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 really lifted my spirits um in a way that uh I hadn't felt in a long time since the beginning of the pandemic. So, um, I'm, I want to try to go there again, just to, you know, follow up and, um, check in with folks and provide support. Um, but yeah, like right now it's no longer a hunger strike. It's more like an Occupy style encampment, which yeah, kind of took me back to the Occupy days. <laughs> it, it reminded me of that. So yeah. It, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting that sort of, that that sense of community through uh, encampments came up in both of our interviews, and I I think there's a lot of debate about sort of protest encampments or whatever you want to call it, especially in the wake of the of the Chaz. Um, what like their actual usefulness? Do they actually do anything? And I mean, certainly none of them will ever be permanent, right? Like <laughs> any 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 kind of you know, liberation of public space in the name of confronting the system is always like, like the state's going to want their park back or whatever. But it is, I think that it does have a strategic utility in providing those moments, those temporary kind of spaces where people can get together and have sort of the in-person feeling and an understanding of what the movement is supposed to feel like. Because too often it's very easy to just kind of, you know, read about it and tweet about it. And it's something that's going on out there to other people. And then when you go to the spots, you realize like, oh, like physically putting yourself in there and with other people, just that act alone makes you think about the entire thing differently. And then you come back yeah. and I wasn't able to go to the city hall encampment as much because of the shit I was dealing with. But I was thinking about it like the whole time I was in Ohio. And like when I got back, like I wanted to know what had happened and, you know, whether they had gotten swept or not. And it's yeah, it's it's just powerful stuff. It's and it's and I think it's important. And I think there are ways it can be used tactically um, to you know, force the city's hand about something or or just to provide occasions for networking and, you know, getting your ideas out in a more public area and finding the other people in your community and surrounding area who are like minded. I mean, that's that's the point, I think. And so I, I'm kind of glad that like the kind of Occupy type stuff hasn't gone away and that it's been able to kind of 
merge its way into other forms of organizing and other tactics. And yeah, it's not an all-encompassing thing. And that was the problem with Occupy is that it turned into the camp itself being all-encompassing and that being the entire thing. And that's not good yeah. because then because the state will always have the resources and eventually they will take it apart. Um, but in those interstitial times, then you yeah you get the you get a sense of liberate you get to feel the sense of liberation, you know, albeit briefly. But those brief moments, those brief feelings, are the things that you need to like sustain you and fortify you, so you can you know, get deeper into the struggle and commit yourself more fully. So I think that it's a tactic that's going to, we're going to see more of it. And I, and, you know, I hope it develops, um, like with the city of hall encampment, like they had gotten like medical tents and, you know, food tents and all this stuff they'd got, they would set it up so quickly and it, it's also a good way to build capacity and, sort of build organizational capacity and strength of learning how to organize, you know, mutual aid in a public way. Because the other thing is that, like, the other important part of it is getting people, building up people's ability to, you know, put this stuff kind of on. Because in a sense, it is kind of training you for, you know, perhaps doing it in a party formation and then perhaps, you know, in a more state-like formation, let's say, um, you know, after you've conquered power or something. I mean, I mean, in that sense, there is a revolutionary element to it. And so I hope that, you know, as people, because tactics, all that stuff depends on the material conditions in any given period. But I do hope that there are more of them you know, around the world and around the country. And I think there will be just because it's very rare just to be able to be with people, you know, or a yeah. common cause. Like <laughs> so much of America is dependent on keeping everyone separated in their own little silos that that's why it feels so powerful. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely. Um, that was one interesting th thing about our interviews is that we were doing these interviews uh, on opposite ends of the country, but pretty much like noticed like the same thing was going on. Like both these different styles of encampments were going on in front of local, like either local police department or local city hall, and um, just showing the. Like, even though it's happening on opposite ends of the country, like, there's still the, the same struggle going on and similar tactics being used to um, basically fight for yeah. a more humane society than the one we live in. So, yeah, I guess the because the other benefit of it is that it then it gives people sort of, you know, tangible experience going up against the machinery of, of the government. And, you know, what kind of tactics they use to stonewall you and subvert you and how the police operate to try and subvert your camp. Like you get experience learning those things and then you can, you know, share knowledge about it. And so that's that's another benefit. I think I think it's there are multi there are many there are 
manifold multiple benefits to to encampments as a tactic and shifting gears so this um this came out in the news just today actually um i think it was in october surprise but released um a month earlier or maybe we're getting the real october surprise in actual yeah i'm sure there's a bunch of october surprises except they will not be very surprising it'll be like trump said this it's like yeah everyone assumed he was gonna he had already said that so bob woodward of uh watergate fame um he he's pretty much just been like kind of a hack now i mean the water yeah like he's been riding on his watergate legacy for since the 70s so but so uh he has a new book out um about the trump administration and he has there were a lot of um on the record interviews with trump so um there was a uh i think this is oh a march 19th interview that bob woodward did with donald trump um basically where trump admitted he said quote uh about basically so trump was talking about like his administration's response to the covid 19 pandemic and his administration's handling of it um so on march 19th he admitted to woodward i always wanted to play it down it being the virus i i still feel like playing it down because i don't want to create a panic so this is trump publicly admitting that he was underplaying and on like basically publicly um playing down the severity of the virus and the pandemic in order to not cause a panic which the real panic was panicking the stock market so i also want to make note of this that when um news of this pandemic like you know when the shelter in place was becoming real on this very podcast we actually mentioned that the trump administration and other republicans pretty much had knowledge of the severity yeah that's why they're all selling their stocks right exactly yeah so go ahead and like you know this this is that was back in like uh, March or April around there. So go ahead and check check our archives. But we we did mention it. I I do remember us talking about that. The Trump administration and other Republicans like knew ahead of time that shit was going to hit the fan. But they decided to protect themselves. And also, uh, Trump downplayed the severity of the crisis in order to not panic the stock market. So what woodward like was being revealed here isn't really anything that hasn't been known before but this is the first time where trump publicly admits on record that he he intentionally played down the severity of the virus and the pandemic so um i say like this is seems like the october surprise because what i'm seeing just people responding to it as like okay like this is going to be the thing that brings trump down because like i don't know like i mean because there's there have been all these sorts of like oh we really got him now like bob Mueller is like ooh, he's just gonna uh, trump like he's just gonna tear his shit down and they all produce nothing like absolutely nothing but this one um 
I mean, like again, if 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 you were paying attention to the news, like like we were, you would have known that, like, yeah, like the administration was playing down the severity of the pandemic, but that didn't really do anything to its administration. But I I will say, like, I'm I'm not really like super hung up on the idea of impeachment, but if impeachment's going to mean anything, then a sitting president who is intentionally downplaying and misleading the American public about the severity of um, th the most severe pandemic that we've seen in a, in a century, that should be an impeachable offense. If if impeachment's going to mean anything, but I don't I don't really foresee much of the Democrats really doing much to. Um, I mean, they, I mean, they might might as well impeach him. They should just be having a rolling impeachment because it's not like they can really do anything else. So, my like right. that's that's the thing about Democrats. They don't understand, or maybe they do. I mean, they do. They just that's not what their job is, you know. But a fighting sort of left opposition party would it would just be like, yeah, rolling, just impeach him for another thing. It's like when the Republicans repealed Obamacare like eighty-seven times or whatever. It's like, like just, yeah. like just keep impeaching him. What are they gonna do? Like, not. <laughs> it's it's so yeah. It's, I mean, impeachment is some extremely bourgeois state bullshit that I don't think ever has been used like in history, like for a progressive cause, um, really. So it's. Yeah, but the yes, the idea that like holding a president accountable seems like it makes sense, and it would be nice if that were a thing that could happen. But you know, at the same time, like he is this like he is the sovereign on some level. Like it does kind of rest with the president. Like Nixon's statement about if the president does it, it's not illegal. There's more truth to it than people want to believe, but. Certainly, like, yeah, it's a crime. It's probably a treasonous offense, um, if you understand things that way. Like, uh, but he's been doing crimes nonstop, and that's why his base loves him. Because he's open about all the yeah. crimes he's doing, unlike all the other right. lying, sniveling DC swamp creatures who pretend like they're not just total criminals. Um, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, there, I'm sure there's more October surprises that will be even dumber, um, but that's what that's what we're, is going to happen. Um, and then who knows what this whole election thing is going to be, if you can even call it that. Uh. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, yeah, if you, yeah, exactly, if you can call it an election. I don't even know what mm -hmm. it is anymore, but I wanted to share that bit of news um who knows what's going to come of it but um yeah we at real sun car hours we did point that out earlier um this is this is just the first time president trump admitting it publicly mm. but again if you've been following the news that this is not this is not really new information the only thing that's new is president trump admitting it publicly anyway uh switching gears um <laughs> As we're recording, so like, okay, so we we previously recorded a bonus episode about another Rachel Dolezal. Like this time, the sequel was better than the original. So yeah. Jessica Krug, who who's a professor, well, formerly a professor of mm -hmm. African American history at George Washington University, um, publicly admitted that 
she had been pretending to be black for years. Basically and her she entire admitted adult life. Her entire adult life. And she publicly admitted that she is a white Jewish woman from suburban Kansas City. And she pretty much dipped her toes in all varieties of blackness. So North African blackness, um, African American blackness, and then Bronx black Puerto Rican blackness. And there's, there are a lot of like black and Latino um, students and scholars and other people who are like, huh, she's not quite who she says she is, but people were afraid to go public. But there were, there were enough people who were pretty much like, you know, who were on her tail and were about to essentially out her as like a white woman pretending to be black. Um, and then she said she released a medium post before <laughs> before she, that they were going to go public with it uh she released a medium post basically saying yes i'm a white woman from kansas i'm so sorry i engaged in anti-black colonial violence and i cancel myself uh, you should absolutely right. <laughs> i believe that almost verbatim you should absolutely cancel me and i cancel myself which is like <laughs> reading all that it's like the only time that language has ever really made sense is someone trying to like use all the bad words to like make themselves to like you know castigate themselves for like doing the terrible thing that they got caught doing and it's like i have com- i have committed erasure i have stolen culture i like this very confessional stuff it's like yeah yes. some for some reason that's that's the only time like all of that language and discourse has has rung true like in a sentence is is in that situation and it's like <laughs> okay um you canceled yourself what is, i don't know what that means but it makes sense please cancel me i'm begging you to cancel me. so the so jessica krug she's rachel dole's all 2.0 but just recently there's another Rachel Dolezal. There's this is Return of the Jedi. So there's so Rachel Dolezal was like you know a New Hope, uh, then Jessica Krug is Empire Strikes Back, and then Return of the Jedi, Rachel yeah. Dolezal is C V Vitolo. So I, I believe they go by they them if I'm not specific because I'm reading the I'm reading the they're referred to as they. So I want to make sure I get um, pronouns right. Uh, so C V Vitolo a PhD student at University of Wisconsin in Madison, um, pretty much is doing the same shit that Krug did. Um, and there is another medium post. I mean, we were talking about Bob Woodward, and I have a feeling that all the October surprises and like most salacious leaks are medium posts now. Yeah, there, there's so, no need yeah. for reporting because everyone's just telling on themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... This is an anonymous post, and the title is C.V. Vitolo Haddad, Another Academic Racial Fraud. And this was published September 4th by an anonymous person who apparently knows C.V. personally, but didn't want to name themselves for fear of, um, you know, any kind of, like, personal uh, uh, repercussions. Um, so, I, I have... Peter, have you heard of C.V. Vitolo? No, I have, I have not heard I, of him. And honestly, this one is... See, see, now it's like, okay, we think we got a franchise now, and now they're just doing cash-ins, and it feels repetitive. I See, that's the thing. Is I like Return of the Jedi, or at least 
I haven't seen it as an adult, so maybe it is bad. I think all the Star Wars movies are bad, honestly, probably. But it's like, now, yeah, now they're just cashing in, and it's just like, come on, guys. Another one. How many more of these are yeah. we going to get? Which, like, probably more than anyone's really comfortable with. How many, how many, uh, how many, I don't know, incog, what's the opposite of incog negro? Like, uh, I, oh, incog, oh, we need, oh, fuck, we need a term for that. Incog cracker? I don't know. Yeah, in, in, in co-cracker? I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll workshop it, but, uh. Yeah, we're gonna workshop a term <laughs> for the opposite of incog negro for white people. Uh, so, I have, I have. Personally, never heard the name C.V. Vitolo until this came up. Uh, so, um, and it's been confirmed since September 7th, so two days ago, that, so, like, so C.V. Vitolo, like, was a lot more ambiguous with their identity than Jessica Krug. Like, Jessica Krug, like, went all in, like, yeah. in terms of the cosplay and minstrelsy. Whereas C.V. Vitola was a little bit more vague and identified as basically various shades of POC identity. Oh, so, like, what the hell is that? <laughs> so, in one iter- it like, it's just like, okay, one minute, C.V. is uh, Latinx. Another minute, they're uh, Habisha, like Ethiopian, like Italian Habisha. Like and then, because um, the last name Haddad, which is an uh, Arab name, a lot of people assume she was Arab, but she never bothered to correct. I mean, sorry, they sorry they bothered they'd never bothered to correct people, but apparently the name Haddad I think comes from a previous marriage. Um. Uh. <clears throat> so. Um, and then like. Uh, I guess like different types of like blackness, like like because the it... term POC is is so elastic that like yeah. it gave CV like a lot of room to sort of bounce between different non-white identities. But turns out, and this has actually been confirmed both by CV themselves and CV's family, that CV Vitolo is Italian. Comes from as like their ancestry is Southern Italian, Sicilian. No one. In their family identifies as black um and apparently i think in this anonymous post cv said that they they are italian with a possible but unconfirmed distant ancestor who is ethiopian but none of like none of the family members identified as black and in the latest apology that cv gave which was yesterday um they said uh all right, this is. I'll I'll read a little bit of this because we did read the confessional from Crooks. I I thought it'd be <laughs> fair to at least read a bit of the similar sort of co- medium confessional. The medium. This is confessional a whole genre that, now. It's yeah, a whole genre. This is the genre. Whole. This is a new genre. So here it is. I want to offer. Uh, and by the way, before before I begin, CV wrote um, a an original medium post. Which was like, I'm so deeply sorry for the ways you are hurting right now because of me. You have expressed confusion, shock, betrayal, anger, and mistrust. Blah, 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 blah. There's no real apology in, I, this, in it's the a, first one. It's, it's impossible to <laughs> apologize for this stuff. It's like, 
I, I have a hard time wanting to say that to them anything other than, like, go kill yourself. Like, I'm sorry. But, like, <laughs> let's be honest. Like, like you knew what you were doing. These are premeditated acts. You did it because you thought you could right. get over on it, and you got caught. Mm-hmm. And, right. like, this is why I have my questions about, like, restorative justice or whatever. Because it's like, restore what? Why are we, like, no, you willfully did something egregious you got caught like you're out you're you're just out why are why yeah. do we need you to come back that's the whole yeah, thing because it's gonna be like it's gonna redemption is gonna be hard in this instance but before i read cv's like apology apology i do want to go back to the the anonymous medium post because they they did some real the, this person did some real digging so i want to read like the, the the part of the the information that's revealed that shows like how egregious this is. So they were able to call together like old photos of CV and looking at the photos like, okay, this is clearly a, a white person with dark hair who has like some kind of olive skin and maybe tans a little bit, but they're clearly white. But this is a part where I think, I think it's probably the most egregious part I read in this. So the anonymous person said a slightly more invested Google search prompted by my unease at the traction this person is gaining as a trusted and I'm sure in many people's minds black leader in the Madison community reveals that they grew up in a purely Italian family though I feel it would be invasive to post images of their family members given that they have not chosen to be part of CV's racial performance publicly available obituaries indicate that all four of their grandparents the same grandparents they claim to be part of an anti-colonial struggle are white Italians. Oh, Their mother, God. the same mother whose accent they allegedly mocked, grew up in New York. Moreover, despite criticisms I have heard them make of middle-class organizers, they grew up in a $1.5 million home in Florida with a property developer father, went to an expensive private high school, and according to an old old Facebook comments from a family members of theirs lived an economically privileged life. And they were able to get like real. So, so apparently the owner of like Vitolo, Vitolo, Vitolo land value, $860,000 building value, $651,800 total value for property, like 1.5 million. So not like not only so, and then the anonymous pay anonymous person goes on. Race, to reiterate, is not only about what is visible, but judging by what I have witnessed, CV is claiming a particular kind of racialized experience and oppression that they have no right to. So basically, CV was saying that, like, like manufacturing an, an anti-colonial, oppressed, uh, racialized experience that is the complete opposite of their actual lived experience, which is <laughs> coming from a privileged white Italian family Wait, in Florida. Yeah, which makes me wonder, like, if, you know, what what were their ancestors' stance on Mussolini, right? Like, Right, right. I, I always wonder about that, because it's like, oh, no, we were fighting off Mussolini in Ethiopia, like, uh, no, oh, then it turns out, oh, maybe your great-grandparents were fascists themselves. Who knows? Uh, I, th- this one seems to me more offensive, just because, like, you're, like, inverting the colonial gaze or something by saying, like, oh, we were actually, like, I fought, like, I, like, my family fought in the Ethiopian resistance, which is, like, a deep cut 
most people don't even know that Italy tried to colonize Ethiopia. Um, right. And so it's just like, like, why do they have to do like the deep cuts? Like, like there's so, like, it's so, whiteness is just so fucking insidious that like they go deeper, like, like they learn about this stuff and then they use it, they weaponize it to like hurt other, traumatize the people who are already traumatized so they can personally benefit and it's just like and you know that there's more of them are going to be coming out of the woodwork like because yeah. because it's you know like affirmative action programs are general like no one had it had never really occurred to anyone who implemented them that this would be a widespread phenomenon that like oh white people can just lie and yeah. they'll then they'll get in and get but also it's it's revealing in the sense that so many white people really do believe that like affirmative action and that kind of stuff does actually constitute a privilege that they don't have and they're like right. in such denial about their own whiteness it's it's fucking sickening I, I, is what it is it, and and i i want to read like cv's like apology apology official quote-unquote apology just just to just to um because we read we read jessica krug's apology a bit and then um and uh and then i want to read i want to read cvs because i think like what they say here i think reveals ties into exactly what peter's talking about so uh, they say i want to offer a clear statement about my identity the wrongs i've done and a and give a concrete apology I am Southern Italian slash Sicilian. In trying to make sense of my experiences with race, I grossly misstepped and placed myself in positions to be trusted on false premises. I went along with however people saw me. I over-identified with unreliable and unproven family history and latched onto anything I remembered growing up. All of these actions were deeply misguided and have caused an incredible amount of hurt for the Madison community, those I organized with, and everybody who has been exposed to this public reckoning. It was my choice and error to identify any differently. What I know now is that perception is not reality. Race is not flat. It is a social construct rife with contradictions. Fighting racism never required dis disassociating myself from whiteness. In fact, it derailed the cause by centering my experience. I need to uh, slow down... Uh take the time to examine things more closely no come to no you, terms. you need what what all of you people need to do right is go to the garbage patch in the pacific ocean go away don't right. don't apologize don't restitute shit right. go right. away nobody should yes. ever have to see you again for the for this yeah. kind of crap and actually for that very reason i'm not going to read any more of this idiotic apology uh but i will put the, uh, just just for the sake of this podcast if people want to read it i'll put it in the show notes but i want i want to read at least a little bit of it because the whole like i've noticed it i don't well whatever this is a podcast because um, <laughs> there, there's various shades of whiteness right there's like they're really really white like the english german uh nordic yeah. types who are like unambiguously white then there are eastern europeans but like once you get closer to the mediterranean like there are white people but like their features are dark enough where like some of them if they want to they can sort of dip their toes in ambiguous POC-ness, which is clearly what cv vitolo, vitolo yeah. did now with a last name like vitolo okay clearly italian so i don't but, like but... I, it, 
Yeah, I mean, if like, I'm sorry, aren't you people supposed to be like academics and smart or some shit? You could have, right. you could have just galaxy brained it by being like, yeah, well, you know, a lot of Italians have African ancestry from the Moor, from when the Moors conquered them, and they're in denial about it. And so you could have said, they could have said all of that and not lied and just had that. And then that would have, you know, like, like you can explain and square this stuff without just fucking lying and pre- and right. committing identity fraud. Like, but no, they have to do it because they have to convince themselves that they are oppressed. They have to right. in order for them to feel like they have any authenticity or whatever, like... Or a sense of like, or a sense of purpose that's clearly missing from their lives. Because yeah. no, I, I said this on the, I said this on the bonus episode. This is the free one, so I will, I'll say it here, um, which is that like, the, like all these all these debates about like, race is so complex and race is you know metaphysical and blah blah blah. It's like yeah, but here's the thing: like, there are clearly identified senses of identity that are real to people and people of those communities know know what they mean and what what they entail so i'll speak specifically for the black experience and i'll define it in very clear terms beyond just using the word black in phenotype and skin color so when i talk about blackness and what it means is that it includes people who are of like indigenous african ancestry throughout the african continent yes africa is a very diverse continent there's multiple ethnic groups and there are multiple countries but what they all have in common is that like they're on the continent of africa and like the people who are indigenous prior to the slave trade prior to colonization and even prior to the the arab um sort of conquest or whatever of north africa like that's what i mean about blackness and then that also includes people who are of african ancestral lineage who are descendants of both the arab slave trade and the transatlantic slave trade which is a large diaspora that touches multiple continents so in the case of like my identity i'm african-american on both sides of my family i can trace where my ancestors were enslaved on both sides of my family and even on part of my mother's ancestry we can trace trace it going back to sierra leone so that is that's my black identity like that's who i am right and blackness includes like yeah like we have culture we have food music intellectual tradition literature all that and it's the same with black people in puerto rico cuba brazil like they speak different languages than african americans but the thing we have in common is that we're all of african ancestry and we were brought here via the transatlantic slave trade and particularly with the african-american experience our experience is very unique because we are slaves who were brought here and we're positioned in the basically the global hegemon which is the united states that's our experience and that's very clear. Like, it's, it's something that's like you don't have to define just by using the word black. But it's like that's it's an actual real ethnic identity. It's a real thing. So, what is offensive is that people outside of the black community, because they you know want to have an adventure or whatever, like this person did, is that they want to identify with very very watered down trappings of blackness, so that. They they could they 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 they're trying to get something for themselves at the black community's expense, and that's not fair. That's fucked up. 
And this is clearly like people like Jessica Krug and C.V. Vitola, like they clearly abused the trust and also the, um, yeah, black people. Like we tend to be very welcoming, and so like they use something that's like kind of part of who we are. We're, we're a pretty welcoming community. Yeah, and they abuse that. They clearly abuse that sense of trust, and now like you know the cat's out of the bag, and like. You know, like, there's, there's, I'm with you, Peter. It's like, there's no reason, like, I mean, okay, apology, whatever, but that's not going to do anything. It's like, at yeah, this point, it's no, like, look, yeah, we, yeah. We, we want nothing to do with you. Yes. Like, you should just go the fuck away. We want nothing to do with you. You were completely useless to the movement. You're a dead weight. And, like, it's, it's just so, on top of the other things that we have to fucking deal with in this country and that we've dealt with for generations, to have someone just clearly abuse our trust in our community at our expense for their own benefit fuck them yeah and and the thing that also gets me and i don't want to spend too much time on this because we already have been are running long but the thing that that uh also gets me is just like these are lefties right these are people who yes who go who like are in academia studying you know, systemic oppression. They know all the language. They know yes. the history. They know that they know the truth, you know, quote unquote. They understand exactly what they are doing and their whiteness still allowed told them it was an okay thing to do. It the, yes. despite knowing the entire history of all of it, they still did it premeditatedly. Like that mm-hmm. like that is whiteness in its most pure distilled form is basically just not letting that stop you and doing it anyway right. because you yeah. want to because you think it would be cool to because you have some stupid shame you know I, honestly I'll take the fucking reactionaries over this horse shit at least they understand who they are right like at least right. a Trump supporter knows who they are and they know right. they're a piece of shit and they don't care. And they know that they have all all their wealth is stolen and they don't care. But at least they know who they are. These people, I just, like, like you, like, this is doing active harm to the left, the movement, whatever, they are scum. whatever you want to call it. Like, we can't afford that, spend time dealing with you people. So, why, yeah, please, anyone who's still, you know hiding out or whatever can we just get all of you to come out now and then we can (laughs) just all deport you to the garbage patch in the pacific island where you belong then you can all work out your little shame complexes there like i yeah this is ridiculous it's ridiculous (laughs) and i'm glad you mentioned that peter that these are people on the left because what the, the way i defined blackness and black identity these are things that people like jessica krug and cv vitolo know like jessica krug like was a professor of african-american history so someone like her knows the history that i'm talking about but even with that knowledge that did not like override their sense of white superiority that they had that knowledge and they ingratiated themselves in the black community and also i i would say like they used they were able to exploit weaknesses and vulnerabilities within black people for their own gain. Yeah. And this is, this is, this is probably like the height among the, the high, 
I don't know if it's like maybe the, the pinnacle, but like it's definitely right up there in terms <laughs> of this height of white arrogance and hubris masquerading itself under the guise of progressive and left wing politics. Yeah, you know, and and this is and this is also why I think like you know as someone who's been on the left for a long time, as a black person who's been on the non black left, like there are reasons why black people who have like deep-seated um i would say anti-establishment instincts and whose political beliefs would largely be i would say larger but like would would probably align with a lot of things that leftists say the reason why like a lot there are a lot of black people who just don't join left-wing movements is because of shit like this yeah Okay, like there's a ton of white arrogance and white hubris in left wing movements, and, just and I hear all delusion, delusion, hubris, arrogance, and like I hear a lot from like white leftists about like how do we reach out to black people? Well, why don't you clean up this shit? <laughs> how about you you take that shit, put it in a fucking trash can, and throw it in the goddamn Pacific Ocean? Then talk about organizing with black people, because until then, like the left, like whatever, like if it if it's going to be useful, it's gonna have to take care of this garbage. And, you know, like, I don't, I don't know people like, I don't know C.V. Vitolo or Jessica Krug personally, <laughs> you know, this is no, like, personal attack, but what they did is horrendous, and there should be consequences for it. Yeah. Just, like, if we're going to move forward with this thing called Black Liberation and Black Lives Matter, we're going to have to deal with this yeah, kind and of if, stuff. And if, and if there's ever going to be any kind of, like, actual coalition, multiracial coalition formed... Where like people can engage, struggle together in solidarity, like, like this, this is the kind of like, cause yeah, at this point it's a trend and it's a reflective right. of, and there have been other incidents like this, and yeah, these are the lefties, so and that you know, cause th- yeah, there's enough white leftist bullshit nonsense that anyone has to deal with in the first place before you even get to the you know high tier egregious level shit like this. And it's like, yeah, when you talk about abusing the trust, I I remember, like, basically kind of my first week at Stanford, um, like, like, during the orientation week, I went to the Black Community Center, and I was genuinely confused as to, like, whether or not I could, like, participate, I guess, <laughs> um, in the sense of, like, I didn't, I still didn't feel, like, necessarily, like, a committed to that identity and you know i said that and um you know the dean of affairs uh was just like no i mean you're part of the diaspora you're part of the family includes multiracial people you know it can look it doesn't have to look one specific way and you know you're absolutely part of the family and the community and i was like wow that's amazing um and that and it is that level of like acceptance that allows people who, yeah, I mean, they, who maybe not, like, <laughs> it, al- it allows those kinds of people to work their way in by, by just being like, yeah, no, it's like a distant ancestor or whatever. They can explain it away, and, you know, because blackness doesn't look one specific way, then they can get away with it. And they, right. and the other thing that I think needs to be pointed out is, like, none of these people, like, came forward. It ne- There was never a point where, it just got too much for them. They're like, I can't keep living this lie. And they came clean and turned themselves in. No, they all got caught. They, they were going right. to keep the con going for their whole fucking life, I guess. Uh, they're going to keep yeah. it going until 
except that someone caught them because the flip side of white arrogance and hubris is vastly overestimating your own abilities. Um, right. And it, <laughs> and so, you, yeah, because you are convinced like you're basically God and can do whatever you want, you don't realize like, yeah, no, everyone else is not an idiot and you're going to get found out because you don't have some amazing, perfect black performance to cover up the fact that, and it's like, even that, like, still none of you people have lips. Like, it is kind of a tell. I'm sorry. But, yeah, and, and also, uh, speaking specifically about, like, southern Italy and Sicily, like, you know, if you look at the history, particularly, like, a island like Sicily, like, it has gone through, like, multiple waves of invasions from different groups of people, like Greeks, um, I think to some extent, um, uh, Amesig or Berbers in North Africa, uh, definitely a lot of Arabs, um, so... Uh, and and other other Europeans as well. So like you know the history of Sicily itself as an island, like yeah, like has been like um, invaded and had like multiple different groups of people throughout the Mediterranean. So yeah, like the pe- people of Sicily are going to, I mean, they're going to be white, but they're going to be more ethnic looking than people from if they, if they're like freaking like Norwegian or German or Dutch or English. So, but the thing is, is that, um, yeah, like that may be true when it comes to the history of Sicily. And it, it's also true for the history of Southern Spain. Like d- when the, the Arabs, um, uh, controlled Spain, like Spain for the most part was a pretty metropolitan area. Like you had Jews, you had Arabs, you had, you know, North Africans, you had black people. You had like, it was a pretty metropolitan area until queen isabel was like all right this is this is catholic shit like get the fuck out of mm-hmm. here so so even like if you look at the history of those countries of those areas yeah like there there are there there is like a real history of multiculturalism yeah and yeah and they can still leave traces on the on the present day italian and, and spanish culture that is true but that does not mean that they are black that doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't give them some sort of entitlement to to a black identity or a black experience or a black culture so that's why i defined blackness very specifically which is that you're part of like the you know indigenous like african people throughout the african continent stretching anywhere from like like look there are black people in north africa who are indigenous to north africa and then you have like light-skinned arabs and that's where like anti-blackness there manifests because there are light-skinned arabs who are anti-black toward black people in north africa and then the, like there's arab so it's like it gets really complicated with north africa then you go down to like the other parts of africa west central southern east africa like there's so many different identities and nations and and languages and then shit when you get to diaspora like you got jamaicans you got cubans brazilians african-americans like you know like we're all like yeah pretty different but you know we're all connected to like this thing called the African diaspora and the African continent. Like that's, that's what makes up black identity. And then also like, yeah, like you have, um, people who may not be of African descent, but who are considered black in, in, um, places like Australia and New Zealand. And look, like there's still, I think arguably a lot of solidarity that's necessary between black people in America and black people in New Zealand and indigenous people there. But, 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 but the way I define it, like that does not include, someone who's sicilian no even if like yeah even if the reality is of sicily as an island yeah it's multicultural 
but it's still white. It's still yeah, European. Yeah, and like ask any Sicilian if they want to be black. Like, come on. Right. Come on, right. guys. Like, that's the thing. It's like you have to be so far removed from even that reality to think, to even have the gall to, to claim that stuff. And it's like, yeah, what? Yeah, I mean, Europe isn't like like the all white fantasy of Middle Earth or whatever. Like that isn't the actual history right. of that continent. But whiteness exactly. arises from a colonial system and classification. Exactly. And so exactly. Like, any European doesn't matter like what they look like when they get on the boat and they go over to the colony, you know, like that's how they that's the system they get plugged into. And that's how they become white. And so that exactly. that's what it that's what the framework comes from anyway. I don't want to talk about this anymore. So yeah, let's just yeah, get out of here. Um, <laughs> That's enough. I just wanted to get that off my chest because I saw that and I thought about, like, wait, we just did an episode. Like, but it's like, it's, yeah, it's enough, but I think it's just important to regulate this shit. Um, because I, I did not expect a, a, a th- uh, I, di- I didn't expect this to be like a trilogy. I thought it'd just oh, be like a Oh, no. Oh, the, <laughs> don't wait until uh, The Phantom Menace comes out. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, oh fuck. We're going to get the Phantom Menace and then the the next trilogy yeah. with like, episode 2 is yeah. really bad, so yeah. yeah. I I oh, please no no more. But Just please. please. No. Yes. Yeah. If, can, can can that at least wait until 2021? I can't deal with that shit anymore in this year like Can we, can we just yeah. start like <laughs> comping uh, dolls halls like like front backloading them? Like <laughs> yeah uh, anyway that's the end of this episode um yeah we hope you enjoyed those interviews we definitely enjoyed them and uh um again www.patreon.com slash real sun car hours again patreon.com slash real sun car hours um follow our rss feed on podbean be sure to support the rest of the folks at resistance to wall like um particularly the drought squad um and uh yeah, that that's pretty much it. Oh, our next bonus episode. Well, I want to tell them what we're talking about, Peter. Oh, kind of give yeah, Richard up. Wright and the Van Dunn Conference um, in 1955. Like, basically the first international group, a conference of colonized nations. Um, the guy, Richard Wright, who wrote Native Son, was sent there by the CIA. So, it, it's actually, there's going to be a lot of interesting relevances to the stuff we've been talking about now so stay tuned yeah so that's the kind of stuff we talk about on our bonus episodes including i mean we already talked about cv vitola but if you want to listen to our thoughts on jessica krug which we already recorded that's also a bonus episode five dollars a month that's the kind of stuff you're gonna get the kind of episodes you get along with um you know exclusive like certain additional interviews um theory readings uh additional rants where <laughs> look if if you think we were intense you know on this recording then we we tend to get more intense uh on the on the bonus episode so um yeah support independent black media five dollars a month patreon.com slash real sonicara hours um and so you know thank you for listening and supporting us um that's it on our our end keep the faith and stay dangerous later peace